Time of death, approximately 10 p.m. Cause of death, allosteric inhibition of essential metabolic enzymes leading to death from multi-system organ failure. Symptoms consistent with poisoning by arsenic or similar. It's also worth noting the victim's been beaten with a blunt instrument, possibly a large wooden marquee mallet. And he, she, has received multiple stab wounds in the neck and shoulders. Single-edged blade suggests large kitchen knife. In summary, another day in midsummer. <laughs> yeah, that is the joke about, uh, well, Midsummer Murder, certainly, is that the, the society is very genteel, is full of old ladies and gentle vicars, uh, idyllic children, all the rest. But behind the chintz curtains, in the churchyards and in the little cottages, of course, lurks the psychopath. There you will find the killers, and there are many, many of those. And in two hours, we can get through at least five bodies. You know, at least five. All right, welcome to episode 30 of CFX, entitled The Midsummer Murders, or depending on where you are, uh, Inspector Barnaby. Welcome. I'm Jeff, and that is Slip. Hello. And so uh, break out your, uh, let's see, what's the name of that beer? The uh, Cursed IPA? Uh, cursed uh, Ale. Cursed, cursed ale. ale. You could also do Costan Ale. So there's many scenes in this where they're in pubs and you can see the um, the tap for Costa Nail displayed prominently. So it's got its own beers. But we'll be talking a little bit more about Cursed Ale um, during this episode, because that's kind of a very special Midsummer episode. Yep. Anyway, uh, CFX uh, stands for the Cultural Futures Exchange. This is where we examine different pieces of cultural ephemera, a TV show today, but music movies, uh, books, other cultural things, examine the context of the time that they came out, released, whatever, what's happened since, and our take on the future valuation of the item in terms of uh, should you go long, would the value go up, go short, the value will decrease or or stay neutral. And that's kind of what we do here. And today is a very British show, uh, Midsummer Murders, which is still on the air, uh, still being broadcast um, after like 23 seasons. And we'll get into the history a little bit about it. But why don't we kick off by uh, talking a little bit about our personal histories with the show before we get into the, his- the conceit of the show, the characters and some backgrounds and all the usual stuff we do. So Slip, why don't you uh, kick off with your personal history here? Yeah, I think... Uh... I should say something first uh, by way of introduction to this episode. There are a few anomalies uh, compared to some of our other episodes. One is it starts much later than anything we've covered, right? So the latest thing I think we covered in the past was Nirvana, which was 1992. Um, And this actually starts in 1997. So it's quite modern. Additionally, it also is the first TV show we've covered where it's still actually on, I guess, other than some of the game shows, tangentially stuff like family feud and, and price is right are still on in some form or other, but this is one that is a fictional show. It's a dramatic show, so it's not a comedy. Um, and it is, it's still on. Right. So that's, that's unusual, I think. And then the other thing that's unusual about is, um, just the type of show and the fact, I think, if people are wondering, you know, after all of this, after all of our discussion discussion of our childhoods and shows that we watched as kids in the 70s, uh, you're probably thinking these guys are pretty old. Well, this show seals the deal. 
Because not only are we old in age, we are old in TV watching habits because this is definitely a fucking show made for old people. It's shut made by old mostly. people. Yeah. yeah, shut-ins. It's made by old people for old people, although it is, as we'll get into, popular across the board. And that's why it's lasted uh, these 25 years through 23 series, as they say in Britain, rather than seasons. Um, and so let's get started as far as my personal history with it. So so my whole family has always been into mysteries, right? Uh, my dad is always reading a mystery. Uh, I get, oftentimes my Christmas gifts to him are mystery novels of some sort or true crime is another thing we love. Um, and I think, you know, all his, my dad has three sisters. They all trade books. I mean, it's just been something that is really, my sister reads a ton of mystery books. I mean, they read a lot of the mainstream stuff like James Patterson and that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, I mean, British stuff is is among those. And it's uh, it's kind of funny because I just gifted my dad for Christmas uh, two of Anthony Horowitz's books. Um, Anthony Horowitz is a mystery writer who we'll be talking about a lot during this episode because he was one of the founders of the show and wrote a lot of the first couple of episodes of the first couple seasons and I think was one of the best writers the show ever had. And he has uh, mystery books out. I'll be talking a little bit more about him in the history, but um, you might have heard of him from Magpie Murders, which is a season, a series that just started with actress Leslie Mans Mansville. As of this recording, it's been on um, Masterpiece for, I think, maybe five or six months. Um, and the book it's based on, those are the books, the um, Magpie Murders and Moon Moonflower Murders that I sent to my dad because they're really good. Um, for mystery books, I mean, he's really great. Uh, but we'll talk more about him in a minute. But I just remember as a kid, like, uh, you know, I never had much respect for the genre as much as my other family members did, but I found myself kind of sucked in. My dad would have these books and I would be over at his house on the weekend. And one of the authors I remember reading is Sue Grafton. And of course, since I'm a very OCD type of person, she has these alphabet murders books. And of course, I had to read them all. I had to go A to Z. And unfortunately, she died after Y. So there is no Z. Um, but but I read all those, right? And they're not the world's greatest literature, but they're super entertaining and they create this kind of their own world, which I think this show is, that's one of the strengths of this show as we'll get into. Now, as far as the show itself, um, it started in 1997, but I didn't discover it then. You know, in 1997, I was living in San Francisco with roommates and, you know, we watched like X-Files and, and The Simpsons and things like that, but I didn't watch a lot of TV. And I certainly didn't watch any PBS at that time, really, which is where this would have aired right. uh, initially. Um, when I start, first started watching this, I moved in with my uh, future wife, my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife. Um, in 2000, we moved into an apartment and we didn't have cable. We never got cable. And this was before streaming or anything. So the way we would watch things is she, um, you know, we'd get things from the library. She started working at the library very shortly after that, like a couple of years after that. And she brought home uh, the killing killings at Badger's Drift, which is the debut episode and series one of Midsummer. And I remember us watching it and just really loving it. Now, my wife has a much bigger background in mystery than me. We have all these old copies of her and her mother's books. Um, you know, she had books by Agatha Christie and she's a Sherlock Holmes expert. Like my wife has a, a, a huge she's read the Sherlock Holmes novels and stories like 10 times each. She knows everything about them. She's super into it. And she's also really into this author named Dorothy Sayers, who's, I think, an influence on this show as well. Um, she wrote, her character was this guy, Lord Peter Whimsey, who was like a this kind of rich um, 
Lord who just as a hobby solved murders. And some of the um, episodes of this, I think Jeff's going to be call- talking about one called Ring Out You're Dead. That yeah. is very influenced by a Lord Peter Whimsy story called The Nine Tailors. Tailors being not the tailor who, who, um, you know, ed- who, who works on suits and things, but a tailor is also someone who rings a bell. So it's a story about these bell ringing. Bell ringing in England is a really complex activity that involves a lot of skill and timing. And there's an episode that Jeff's going to talk about in Midsummer that goes into this very English activity, church yeah. bell ringing, right? Um, so Dorothy Sayers was huge. Obviously, Agatha Christie Poirot. Um, I've probably seen some of the Poirots before I saw Midsommar because my wife is a huge Hercule Poirot fan, especially the David Suchet. Um, we'd watched the, a lot of the Sherlock Holmes adaptations, uh, you know, the Jeremy Brett being the best ones from the 90s and 80s and 90s. And um, we watched those. Of course, Miss Marple is the one that has a huge influence. That's another Agatha Christie detective, an amateur uh, kind of spinster detective who has a huge influence on the show as well because all of her mysteries take place in villages like uh midsummer um so basically that's kind of the the story you know we started watching it and we just get the new ones whenever they come out and finally when we got netflix streaming was the first streaming platform out there that we got um and amazon prime they were available on those so i've watched almost every episode of this show some i remember more than others that we'll get into but I continue to watch even the new seasons. I haven't seen the latest season yet because I have BritBox, but I don't have Acorn. Acorn's the one where these come out on, and it's not available on every platform. Now now it's available, most of the seasons, the vast majority are available on YouTube for free, and they're also available on many of the channels, um, including Freebie, which is part of Prime, so you can watch them. So we've continued to watch these, um, and uh, I've continued to be a fan of the show, um, regardless of its qual- inherent qualities, which we'll talk about. So that's my history. Yeah, uh, my history is, um, I started watching it, I think, in on cable and various channels that you mentioned in early uh, 2000s. My wife started watching it. Um, she was really into mysteries at the time and murder, murder mysteries in particular and murder shows. And she was into true crime murder stuff as well, like, you know, unsolved mysteries and all that kind of stuff and started watching this and when she started watching it like she's like hey check this out we started watching it together and we weren't sure at first if it was a goof or not like you know but pretty soon when you start after you start watching it you realize that it is that it's a little tongue-in-cheek a very tongue-in-cheek in fact and, and, it, and it's a bit of a goof and so we kind of got into it and watched it for a while I, I think we watched most of the early seasons and i say early even up to like season seven or eight that that kind of general time frame watched it on and off over the years i i think we got through most episodes of the seasons in which uh john nettles was a uh, uh, tom barnaby and then when um his uh, identical cousin well not identical cousin but that's a, a trope i'll get into uh came uh john barnaby uh came to uh take his place I didn't watch it as much i think we watched a few of the episodes of that season where um uh, John uh, Barnaby came along. Who was it? the guy, who, the actor who plays John Barnaby was on many episodes, um, including many, played a couple of murders, I think, um, in earlier seasons, which is kind of- I amazing. think he was on one. 
Was and he? he was like a womanizer, which oh, is so weird. Yeah, he just yeah. doesn't strike me as that type. There's no. there's often those characters, right? He's there's a gardener a or something, or like a like a landscape. But, but there's there's one where he's like God's gift to women or something, yeah. which is funny. And it's it we should mention, we didn't really we'll talk more about the plot of the show, but we should mention this show has a lot of sex and a lot of murder. Yeah. Like more as as uh John Nettles said at the beginning, I mean. You know, this is probably the most dangerous region on earth, this area of England. This fictional, it's a fictional area, but we'll get more into that. But anyway, yeah. sorry. Well, and and the, and I want to point out that the sex is uh really uh weighted towards old people having sex too, which is part of the goof. It's not like a lot of young right. hot people, it's a lot of kind of gross old people too, which is sort of funny. And I'll talk more about that. Um, so anyway, the, and we don't really watch it anymore too much. We started rewatching some episodes uh, in preparation for, for our show here. Um, and we watched a few, uh, just randomly, uh, a few of the ones um, that we'll be talking about, including uh, one ju- called Judgment Day, uh, which I'll be talking about too. And it, it's sort of funny, but uh, we'll get into how well we think it holds up. So I'll turn it over to you now. Let's talk about the zeitgeist and sort of the where this kind of show came from and so, some background more. Right. So obviously this show is a mystery story um, or it's a series of mystery stories involving the same kind of, you know, the same detective, right? John Barnaby or Tom Barnaby rather. Um, and then John Barnaby. And it's, you know, that sort of detective fiction really sees its origin in a, uh, a story by Edgar Allan Poe called Murders in the Room Morgue in 1841. And that was that featured a very smart detective who sort of deduces the murders, which end up being committed by a rabid ape of some kind. Um, which, and, which also inspired a song by what band? Iron Maiden, Iron right? Maiden. Yeah, That's Iron right. Maiden, right. Yes. Uh, so, um, although I, Midsummer's violent enough that maybe we'll get an Iron Maiden song out of it, you know, someday. Maybe they'll be maybe. killing it. Badger's Drift will be a, be a song on a future Maiden album to come. Who knows? Yeah, we'll see. Um, not sure if they're fans of the show, but obviously there were some other early detectives that, um, you know, we had Sergeant Cuff from Wilkie Collins's gothic novel, The Moonstone. Uh, he was a Scotland Yard detective in that. That was really early. And of course, the most famous being Sherlock Holmes uh, from Arthur Conan Doyle. And there is some Holmes in Barnaby, in the Barnabys, right? They, you know, Holmes is really smart. He's able to solve these crimes. And most of the crimes in Midsommar are so outlandish and ridiculous that you would need a Sherlock Holmes kind of fictional character to make these incredible lo- leaps in logic. So Barnaby shares some of that, right? And obviously he's, that is the most famous um, and most influential author of, of mystery fiction of all time, Arthur Conan Doyle, right? And then you get another blockbuster author, Agatha Christie, who I think has more of an influence on these shows than, than, than Doyle. Um, and then another one, G.K. Chesterton, Father Brown. We'll talk a little bit about that about more about him when we talk about the whole idea of the cozy mystery, which also has influences on this show. And I mentioned Dorothy Sayers and Lord Peter Whimsey, right? So those are some of the main influences. Um, So usually there's this whole uh, thing of the cozy mystery. We'll get into that in a bit, but also Midsommar is also kind of a police procedural. Now it's not really heavily police procedural. So police procedural show is generally a show where invest investigators from the police department investigate crimes in their district, in their jurisdiction, right? And in this case, their jurisdiction is this area around the somewhat 
medium-sized city of Coston, which is known as Midsommar. And all the there's all these villages around Midsommar. It's fictional. Um, we'll get into more of where it was actually filmed because the look and feel of this show is one of the best aspects of it and most important aspects, I think, that are critical to its, its success. But basically, this whole idea of them serving a jurisdiction and being police officers. Now, you don't see much at the police department. They do go there. There's not much of like, you know, Barnaby, you don't play by the book kind of thing you see in a lot of American shows. Um, but there isn't a history of this police procedural, obviously. Um, one of the things I think that influenced this show a lot is um, George, the author, George Simonon, his Inspector McGray, um, which has been adapted a few times um, in British television and French television. Um, and that he wrote in the 30s. So he was one of the first police procedural authors. And then, of course, in the U.S., you have Dragnet, right? The ultimate first police procedural show very different in tone and nature than this but again it's a it's a police officer and his partner going around and questioning uh and trying to solve a murder or trying to solve a crime and that is kind of the basis of this show as well barnaby always has some partner and we'll talk about the different partners over the years um and then of course you have the british tv mystery which again is part of this and I, me and my wife watch not only midsummer but we watch tons of other of these shows all the time um you know and obviously in, there was uh one of the most influential was in the 80s was inspector morse his jurisdiction was uh oxford and the college of oxford and the town around there and morse has spawned off many spin-offs such as inspector lewis who was his his partner at the time and then of course there's a prequel called endeavor endeavor that until recently was really good uh that takes place in the 60s and 70s and then last year it really jumped the shark but that's uh for another time uh so the other thing it's influenced by is this whole idea of the cozy mystery so the cozy mystery is one of these things where you know, it's kind of weird because you're dealing with so much, so many murders and things and so much treachery and crime. How can it be cozy? Well, it's kind of the atmosphere. And um, there are a few elements of the cozy mystery. Now, the cozies have their origin mostly in Agatha Christie, especially Mrs. Marple um, and Dorothy Sayers. And you could even say Murder, She Wrote is kind of a cozy uh, mystery in the um, what is it? The Cove, the Castle Cove or whatever that town is. She's, she's in this small town in Maine and there's tons of, you know, there's like a murder every week. Right. Uh, so, but it's that same thing where it's a small town and then there's just an amateur sleuth, right? Uh, a mystery writer played by Angela Lansbury. And you have the same thing uh, here, except for in the, in this cozy, they're not, they're police. So they're not amateurs, right? Um, unlike Mrs. Marple and Lord Peter Whimsey, but the small town environment, the village environment is totally that kind of thing. And the other difference between the cozy and this is usually the murders in a cozy are not really depicted very graphically. And in Midsummer, you do have some blood and you do have some graphics. And then, of course, the sex is all over the place. Now, it's not usually depicted in your face, but sometimes it is, but it's spoken of. So it's a little more sexy and dark than um, a typical cozy. So it has elements. Um, now, Jeff put a note here. Uh, that I found curious. And so I think I'm going to leave him to explain this note because I've been waiting this whole time to find out what he's talking about here. So go ahead. So when I was doing research for the <laughs> show, I encountered a few references to uh, midsummer porn or midsummer inspired porn. Now, um, I wouldn't know anything about this, of course, but uh, Slep, you may have some expertise here. Like there's a lot of parody, porn parodies. Oh, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. 
where like if there's anything popular, there's some porn parody where they get some, you know, actors and actresses, you know, who dress up like characters and things like that. And I kept seeing references to Midsommar porn and I, I was forced to do some research, but yet I could not find any, but I kept seeing references to it. So as of recording here, I have not, I don't have, I was really hoping to have some audio clips, which would have been hilarious. Oh my God. But I, I was not able to find them, but I'm going to keep doing this research because, you know, our listeners would demand it. And if I find any of those, we'll, we'll put it in our Instagram. So, um, but, I, but I did see several references to it, but I, yet I could not find it, which does not seem to be very promising, but we'll see. Right, so anyway, right. Um, sorry to disappoint you, but, uh, you know, I, I let our listeners down too. I, I will keep doggedly chasing this lead. Um, the... Uh, the Midsummer Conceit, I mean, you talked a little bit about that, but let's get into that a little bit. I want to uh, play a couple clips here of John Nettles talking about the show and, and the background a little bit to, to set the stage. I think it's because it is a, a, a version of the classic uh, English whodunit. It goes back as far as Sherlock Holmes, even beyond that, and comes up through uh, Dorothy Sayers, and certainly the Im immediate predecessor to uh, Miss Murders is uh, Agatha Christie's work. But we are a bit more bloody than Agatha Christie, and that's the twist for us. Uh, the great appeal, I think, uh, for the viewer watching it is the contrast between the extraordinary gentility and very English gentility of the appearance of Midsummer and the awful bloody savagery behind the lace curtains. So uh, again, I think John Nettles references many of the inspirations and uh, precursors that you talked about uh, slip as well. Right. So, right. Um, or one last thing I want to play from John Nettles is his, sort of his take on on the character of Barnaby, um, and we'll we'll talk about the characters a bit more in a minute. But I think um, John Nettles, being the Tom Barnaby, the main character, I think he talks a little bit about some of the background here of him as a character. Which and then we'll talk a little bit about Midsummer, um, where it's set, and some of the other um, elements of the show. So here's uh, John Nettles on on Barnaby. Barnaby's got that. <laughs> he has a stiff upper lip, and Midsummer Murders, the series, is full of English stereotypes. They don't exist anymore, of course, really, really speaking. But Barnaby epitomizes, it seems to me, Englishness of a certain kind. He's very reserved, has, has the stiff upper lip, the steely glaze, and the ability to find the killer. It's one of those jobs. So he's very, very, very English. And, uh, yeah. Uh, but very, very old-fashioned, and he's very, very, very normal. And what he's very normal. I like that quote. And so, so Midsummer. I think you talked about this. is a fictional English county. The county town is called Coston, which is it seems to be a you know kind of a medium-sized uh, town in in the, in the middle of England. He uh, Barnaby is uh, his title is Detective Chief Inspector, which seems to be a fairly senior uh, uh, position. Um, he lives uh, with his wife, Joyce, who we'll talk about uh, quite a bit. Um, and that is where the CID, the Criminal Investigation Department, is located. And I think you talked about the coziness aspect, but a lot of the popularity of the series, I think, is sort of the, the incongruity of the violence and the picturesque rural settings and, you know, lovely, uh, you know, rural England. Um, and it, the area where it's filmed is for people who know is uh, you've mentioned Oxford before Oxfordshire, which is the larger area around Oxford town where the university is. 
is is one of the filming locations. Also, uh, Bucks, which is Buckinghamshire, which is I think a little bit uh, east of Oxford uh, area, if my map reading is correct. And so it's all around in that area. A little further west of Oxford is an area called the Cotswolds, which many people have heard of, which have these big, you know, really famous um, um, houses that are built of this beautiful stone and many of the um, kind of chocolate box little uh, rural settings that you see of rural England are in that area because it's, it's quite lovely, a lot of gardens and the usual thing. Um, many of the villages in the small towns have Midsummer in their name. Uh, so Midsummer Norton and Midsummer this, Midsummer Wellow, all kind of, uh, you know, related to the larger uh, county, I guess, of, of Midsummer, right? Uh, let's see. Each episode definitely contains several murders. I mean, uh, the high body count is, is a part of the show. It's, it's joked about. Um, the culprit is almost never a serial killer. It's usually, you know, somebody who would have gotten away with it if it wasn't for the meddling Barnaby and, and such. Right. Um, you know, to, you know, they always uncover, you know, there's always some weird motivation and it's always the usual sort of, you know, uh, you know, revenge or, you know, uh, you know, financial crimes or all the usual sorts of things. We'll get into that. Um, there's dark humor in it. Right. And it's sort of a goof, like we mentioned, um, you know, for example, we'll talk about some of these other plots. But, you know, if you've never seen the show, this will give you a sense of it. A woman was uh, murdered with a wheel of cheese in one episode. Um, there was a guy who was murdered by a trebuchet, which is kind of a catapult by wine bottles, which I'll talk about um, in more details uh, in more detail later on. Um, here's a quote here that I found, or it says, Midsummer Murders never takes itself too seriously, but here it's got its tongue so far in, in, in its cheek that it hurts. And so, again, it's a goof, and it's a kind of severe goof, um, to, to say the least. And, you know, there's an element of this show, and we'll talk a little bit about this when it comes to maybe some less savory things um, about the show in, in terms of nostalgia being a uh, you know feature of it. Um, you know, most of the episodes are set in a, you know, rural village that are, you know, afraid of change and they're very, um, you know, set in their ways and they don't like necessarily new things. And um, that has been parodied in various ways, um, including um, in, a, in a very famous, funny movie that I'll talk about uh, a little bit later. But uh, anyway, it's sort of the juxtaposition of this of this peaceful rural existence in beautiful England with all the gardens and the trees and the lawns and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, murder and old people uh, getting it on. So why don't we uh, talk a little bit about the characters uh, slip? So why don't you, uh, why don't we can yeah. trade off here. Why don't you talk about Barnaby? Right. So in the opening of the show, the first uh, seasons, uh, you know, obviously the star is John Nettles as Tom Barnaby, who is a senior member of the Coston uh, CID, as we mentioned, um, they even say he used to he used to work for MI6, which is ridiculous, right? I mean, um, but anyway, he's, you know, Barnaby is like this regular kind of guy, you know, in a lot of ways. I mean, he likes his eggs and bacon and he likes beer. I always love the scenes where him and either Troy or Jones or whoever his partner happens to be that season, you know, are at a pub outside drinking a pint. You know, it's yeah. just so soothing. But that's the kind of guy he is. He's married to a woman named Joyce, whose main feature, and Jeff is going to talk a lot more about her, is that she is a absolutely terrible cook. 
um, that's all she really does. She's a housewife. And she she's also involved in some of the stories like she, you know, there's an episode that takes place in a theater I'll be talking a little bit about. And Joyce is like an extra in in the play. It's actually during a play of Amadeus. The, the play yep. um and uh she's also like often entering like flower contests there's a lot of contests she may be making some food or volunteering for a fate you know obviously the village fate is a cornerstone here that's kind of a, a fair that villages have right and there's also these various contests such as you know best village which we'll talk about and she's often involved in these plots but her main job is just a housewife Right. Yep. And then they have a daughter named Cully, who's named after a town in Switzerland where I guess she was conceived. Yep. Um, and it's um, on Lake Geneva, by the way. Uh, OK. And in, in Switzerland in the French speaking area. Not, it's about uh, 40 minutes from Geneva for those who are curious. Right. So so she is a like a Cambridge graduate who is kind of unfocused. You know, she's she's majored in one thing and another. And she's, you know, one of her things is she's trying to be a dramatic actress. So like she there are some plays with her and stuff, but she's often working odd jobs. She doesn't really seem to have much focus. Um, she's kind of an interesting character well, in some except ways. Except for uh, Barnaby's partners, which we'll get into. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Later. We'll get into that. There's always a little romance there. Um, now, his first partner is uh, Detective um, Gavin Troy, right? Detective Sergeant Gavin Troy. Um, Gavin Troy is a really interesting character, and I'll be talking about him. We'll have some nice clips of him coming up. Um, he has some quirks for sure. He's kind of a likely lad. He's kind of a regular bloke. He yeah. uses a lot of kind of Cockney slang. Um, he is not politically correct. That is an understatement, which we'll get to. Uh, but he is. Um, he also has uh, another trait, which is that he's an absolutely terrible driver. And there are many scenes of him being scolded by Bar uh, Barnaby, him almost hitting people, him almost having head-on collisions throughout these villages. He's tearing through these back roads around these villages, you know, going going after each interview and clue and stuff like that. He's also not the greatest detective. It's almost always Bar. He almost always comes up with theories that are incorrect. And Barnaby corrects him. Now, there is one exception, which is the last episode he's in. So so Detective Troy, played by um, Daniel Casey, is the part is Barnaby's partner for the first seven, first six seasons completely. And then he's in the first episode of the seventh season, The Green Man, which actually features a pretty famous actor before he was famous, Henry Cavill. Played Superman, um, but anyway, he actually does contribute to the solution, and he gets promoted at that point. So that's, um, you know, we'll talk about his other partners in a minute. Now, the other uh, main character of the first part of the of the show is Doctor George Bullard. Now, he's the obligatory um, pathologist slash coroner. Um, he's there to kind of give the cause of death and all these elaborate murders. I mean, as Jeff mentioned, we'll talk more about this and we'll give some more examples. None of the murders are straightforward. I mean, sometimes people will get shot or stabbed, but it's almost always some elaborate kind of setup that seems more trouble than it's worth. It's really strange. I think it's part of the entertainment and the dark comedy. But of course, you need dark Dr. George Bullard there to you know wonder at these strange murders and circumstances and comment on them. So he is um, he is a major major character. For you, you heard from him in the opening clips that's describing right. uh, a murder scene that where the person was killed by 14 different weapons uh, as a goof, by the way, uh, which we'll right. talk about later. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I think he he's a he's a good character. There are other replacements for him. He was on the show for the first 14 years, so he kind of outlived. We should say Barnaby was on the show for the first or um John Nettles was on the show for the first 13 years before his cousin somehow took his place, which we'll talk about because that is not usually the way things are done in England. I'm pretty sure uh, yeah. that they just give the job to your cousin. Um, but we'll talk about why that was done and, you know, et cetera. So I mentioned Joyce. I don't know if you want to say anything more about Joyce. I think you're going to talk about Joyce and Cully more in your eval. That's right. We'll, we'll postpone we'll it. We'll leave it for that, that right? Yeah. There's more background on her. But okay. So obviously, uh, Gavin Troy leaves in season seven. and We get one of the weirdest, weirdest things happen. So, um, we get uh, a replacement, um, DS Dan Scott, and he's kind of introduced to the show and he exits the show in the most unceremonious way. He's his first episode um, is called Bad Tidings, and he's just he's he just shows up, you know, without any explanation. And uh, Barnaby basically says, "Welcome to Midsummer." And Dan Scott is a Londoner who, res- who, re- who regards Midsommar as, you know, the sticks, as a bunch of hicks. He doesn't have much respect for Barnaby. They don't seem to really like each other throughout. And the other thing that's interesting about Dan Scott is um, he, and he's played by John Hopkins, I shouldn't mention. He, um, he actually is the most likely to have relationships with victims and <laughs> suspects. <laughs> I mean, it seems like he's kind of a handsome guy and people like him and stuff, but, but when he leaves, um, he's replaced by Ben Jones, uh, which Ben Jones, I will, I will obviously get to played by Jason Hughes, but when he's replaced, it's almost like, Oh yeah, he was sick today. And that's the last that's mentioned him. He was on for a very short time, just yeah. the remainder of season seven and eight. He's been, um, he's visiting his sick mother, like Suzanne Summers, a character in, uh, you know, Three's Company when she. Left yeah, the exactly. Show. They dropped it, but there's no indication on Wikipedia or any of the um, fan wikis of his abrupt leaving being a problem. It seemed like he just decided to leave, or he was let go. But it wasn't, you know, there's no animosity that I could find because it was kind of abrupt. Well, he's replaced by um, DC Ben Jones, who's originally a detective constable who gets promoted detective sergeant. So he's actually a, a uniformed police officer who just kind of comes on the scene um, and Barnaby takes him on. Now he is the partner. He's the only partner to have been the partner of both Tom Barnaby and John Barnaby. He was on the on the show from series nine to series 15. So he's pretty much the longest between him and, and Troy are tied for the longest uh, serving partners. Um, and Jones, you know, a lot of these partners, you know, Tom Barnaby, uh, John Nettles, and Neil Dudgeon, who plays John Barnaby, are kind of older. So when there's action, this is what the job of the young partner is. And I think this is pretty true in almost all of these series, where there's a partnership between an older and a younger partner. The younger partner is there to chase down the villain at the end. And Jones... Right. Jones is very, very active. There's even one episode where he's being tortured at the end and this woman is torturing him. We'll talk about the incongruity of some of the murderers and the the kind of how old they are and how much strength and they have to overpower their <laughs> victims, which I think is one of the funniest things about the show. Um, but but basically he he's he's tortured by this woman. She's about to beat him to death with a cricket bat. And um, it's funny because I can't imagine this woman, uh, you know, being strong enough to overpower a relatively young, fit guy like Jones. Um, but he's kind of a, you know, he's interesting. He's kind of a 
a blank slate. He's got a little personality. I don't think he has the same personality. I, as a matter of fact, I think none of the other partners match Troy uh, in terms of personality. Although in terms of political correctness and, uh, you know, definitely probably better with Jones. Um, now, after the 13th season, um, uh, Tom Barnaby was replaced by John Barnaby, uh, which is his cousin. I know that seems really dumb, but we'll talk more about that in a minute. Um, he's played by Neil Dudgeon, and he's been he's been the main detective of the show since season 14. So he's been um, lasted quite some time. Now, the show is 23 series. It's been on for 25 years, but obviously it was slowed down a bit by COVID. So that's why we're only on series 23 here in uh, 2022 slash 2023. I guess they're gearing up for series 24. Uh, John Barnaby is married to a woman named Sarah Barnaby, who's quite a bit younger than him. And I think a little too hot for him. She's a yeah. little milfy. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's funny because she's like probably our age, like early fifties and Barn uh, Neil Dudgeon's about 10 or 12 years older than her. So it's not out of the pale, but um, they, uh, she's actually got a job. She's like a headmistress of a school. So she's like a school teacher slash administrator. And they have a little dog named Sykes who was there for five years. Um, he didn't die. He just decided his owner decided to retire. him. so they got another dog named Patty to replace him. And there's a lot of bad comic relief with, you know, them and Sykes, um, uh, kind of cutesy. They also end up having a baby, um, in series 15 and the baby baby was named Betty after one of the producers, which we'll get into in the history. Um, but yeah, so that's kind of the way the show stands now. Now there are a couple of other side characters. I'll just mention briefly. Um, George Bullard was replaced by Dr. Kate Wilding for three years from series 14 to 17. She is the, uh, pathologist. Uh, she's kind of younger, kind of upbeat. There's a little bit of sexual tension between her and, um, the, uh, DS Charlie Nelson played by, um, uh, let me get his name, uh, Gwilym Lee, who replaced Jones. Um, but it's pretty minor. Um, and then she is replaced by Dr. Cam Caramore, who's really kind of more significant. She was on the show for just two years, uh, season 18 and 19. Um, and she's mainly significant because she's an Indian actress of Indian descent, yeah. which as we'll get to uh, Midsommar when it started out, I mean, look for a person of color, you're not going to find it. Um, it is one of the whitest shows ever. Um, and it's also one of the oldest shows, right? Everybody's old, everybody's white. Um, and all of the detectives and stuff are white. Um, but she is the pathologist replacement for Kate Wilding. She didn't last very long on the show. And then the new um, replacement for Charlie Nelson is DS Jamie Winter. Um, and he is played by Nick Hendricks, and he has been on the show since series 19. Um, and then you have Dr. Fleur Perkins, who's an older woman, uh, who I think has been on Midsommar before as a, one of the characters, one of the, one of the guest stars. Um, she is the coroner now uh, since season 19. So that's where the characters stand. So let's get into the background and history a little bit. Yeah, how did the so, show come to be? How it came to be was... Uh, there's an author named Carolyn Graham who's still alive, 91 years old now. Um, but she's she wrote uh, the books that this show is based on. So this this series is based on um, a series of successful books uh, that are based around Inspector Tom Barnaby. Um, and the first, of course, was just like the first episode of the pilot was Killings at Badger's Drift, which was written in 1987. Uh, the second episode is taken from the second book, Death of a Hollow Man, 1989. 
Uh, Death in Disguise, 1992, one of my favorites, uh, revolves around a new age cult, um, which I'll be talking about a little bit. Uh, it was written in 92. Written in Blood was written in 1994, which is, I think, believe the third episode of the first series. Uh, Faithful Unto Death came a little bit later in the first series. Um, that was written in 1996. And then she wrote two more books that have never been adapted for the show, uh, A Place of Safety, written in 1999, and Ghost of the Machine, written in 2004. So she wrote these books. The, the first book got some notice. It got a few awards, won a few mystery awards. And so uh, producers Betty Willingate, that is the namesake of the um, Barnaby baby that is born in season 15, uh, she uh, created the show with another producer named Brian Trumay and a write and writer Anthony Horowitz, who we mentioned. So he was initially one of the creators of the show. And um, Betty Willingate has had a long history, or Willingale has had a long history in British television, and she worked on the show all the way up until her death. Uh, at the age of 94 in 2021. So that's pretty interesting. Hmm. Um, now, Horowitz uh, adapted a bunch of the uh, books um, and wrote some originals for the first two seasons as well. So he wrote uh, the pilot, which is adapted from the book. And we'll talk, I'll be talking about the pilot extensively. I think it's still the best episode of the show, uh, debatably. And um, it's kind of sets the tone for what's to come forward. So I will be talking about that in my eval. But he adapted that from the novel. He also adapted Written in Blood. Um, he wrote an original, and then he wrote three originals, Death's Shadow, Strangler's Wood, and Dead Man's Eleven, all in the first series, um, all in the first two series, sorry. And then um, he had a big background in TV writing. You know, he'd written for a few different British shows, um, but he has since become a best-selling writer. He has not only written the Magpie Murders books, he's written new Sherlock Holmes books. He has some other detective series. He has young adult series, and he also is the writer of James Bond now. Mm -hmm. So he has done quite a lot, and he has become a, a kind of, the most probably the most famous of the show's creators. Um, now, John Nettles started in theater, very similar to probably most of the people who are on this show uh, in, you know, a lot of Shakespearean actors here. Um, he was a theater actor with some minor minor roles, but his first big break came in 1981 when he became the lead star and namesake of the show Bergerac, which is a um, a crime drama about a pl Jersey police officer that ran from 1981 to 1991. Now, the show was first began filming in 1996, and the first episode, The Killings at Badger's Drift, was broadcast in 1997. Um, it was the single highest rated drama. Now, it came out on this uh, rival of BBC called ITV, and it was the single uh, highest rated program of 1997, watched by 13.5 million viewers, um, and it has been... Uh, basically a major hit ever since almost all of the supporting cast are well-known british actors um there are a few that would become famous later like obviously i mentioned henry cavill and emily mortimer who's in the first episode and then of course uh orlando bloom yeah. uh who's in judgment day which we'll be talking about a little bit more and i i, I want to point out olivia coleman who is who is in the uh hot fuzz movie which i'll be talking about too oh so yeah she was in the and she's now an Oscar-winning actress, and, and an she played Queen Elizabeth in The Crown and, you know, world-famous actress. Also in one of my favorite British shows called Peep Show. That's played, right. She played Sophie. Right. Um, so anyway, uh, 
Nettles uh, decided to retire in 2010 and Neil Dudgeon was hired to play John Barnaby, Barnaby's cousin. And as we mentioned many times, that sounds really dumb. But the reason they did that is, as Jeff briefly mentioned at the onset of the show, uh, the show is known as Inspector Barnaby in many countries around the world. It's not called Midsummer Murders uh, because as I'm, as we mentioned before, it's been translated into many languages, broadcast around the world. It's a huge sensation. So they didn't want to have to change that name. So they just came up with this incredibly convoluted way of maintaining the name. Um, and so that's basically the, that's basically the history of the show. I mean, there's obviously, you know, a lot of changes throughout and we'll be, I'll be talking a little bit more about the John Barnaby stuff than Jeff, because I am uh, more familiar with it, I think. And I continue to watch the show. Um, and uh, we'll talk about how it ranks with the Tom Barnaby stuff and what my opinion is of that. But for now, I'll hand it over to Jeff uh, for your evaluation. Okay, so evaluation. So first of all, um, you know, a big part of this show, as we were talking about, is it's, you know, kind of set set in this genteel English, uh, you know, village sort of setting with lots of nice villagers and things like that. And you have all these murders happening and there's all this dark comedy. And when I first started watching the show, when, when my wife and I first started watching it, we weren't quite sure, is this, a, is this a taking itself seriously? Is this a goof? We didn't quite figure it out right away until we sort of like, okay, this is a complete goof. And um, the people who make the show uh, know it is too. And they, you know, kind of think it's funny. And you heard John Nettles talking a little bit about that. But there was a um, little mini documentary, as it were, and I say kind of in air quotes, called Surviving Midsummer" that was put out, which is a, you know, a tongue-in-cheek look at the various ways that people are killed um, in the show with some comic exaggeration. And, and they produced this little thing that uh, it was sort of a, the conceit was how to survive in Midsummer uh, by avoiding all the ways that people typically die. And so I thought it might be interesting to kind of go through that because they do cover most of the ways that all these convoluted and comic murders uh, happen. And so I kind of wanted to, uh, to talk about this. So the first lesson, uh, you know, to survive in Midsummer and, and the murder rate in a relatively light uh, density population there is astronomical. Um, it, it's just crazy. And so, um, you know, they have to provide some uh, ways for people to survive uh, living there or visiting there even. And the first th lesson one is you have to avoid the village festivals. You, you talked you talked a little the bit fates. about this. Yeah, the fates. Yeah, the village fates. Now, they, the way that, by the way, the way the British pronounce this word fate, it sounds like F-A-T-E, but it's spelled F-E-T-E. And in French, it's fete, which means party or festival or something like that. So it's a French word that they pronounce wrong. I just want to point that, point that out. Uh, so it sounds like fate, but it's actually fete, which is the, the French word. Uh, so anyway, I'm going to play a couple clips here, and, and, and we'll talk about this. So here, here's the first uh, uh, clip. With such a high number of homicides per year, any visit to Midsummer should be treated with caution. So here are seven lessons, a kind of essential tourist information, if you like, that show what to do and what not to do should you find yourself down Midsummer Way. In Midsummer, wherever a crowd of folk is found enjoying themselves in a seemingly innocent community fashion. You can bet your last raffle ticket that one of them is thinking of murder. So that's uh, uh, the the uh, character George Bullard, you know, uh, talking about talking about this. And so there are many episodes where um, somebody eats it at some village uh, festival, 
And the weird thing about this and why this one is particularly funny to me is I think if you really counted the number of festivals that happen in Midsummer or Costin or whatever it is, there must be like three a week. Because like almost every episode of the show, there's some like festival that's celebrating this or that, or it's, you know, it's it's a mid-spring and it's a late spring. And it's, uh, you know, there's like so many that they invent to have this conceit that somebody's going to gonna buy it. And, uh, you know, they, the way that, uh, you know, they, they, they turn up the, you know, kind of heat on all these uh, murders and the motivations for these murders is this. Even if you manage to avoid being killed in one of these quaint little midsummer bashes, the odds are you'll still have experienced some nastiness. These are hotbeds of jealousy, bitterness, and revenge. <laughs> yeah, that's funny, but I just want to say something about this, because this is something I forgot to bring up in my notes or anything that I've always thought about this show that's one yeah. of the funniest things ever. So they have these fates, they have all kinds of different festivals, right? They have contests, they have they have different fairs, they have yeah. movie festivals, you know, they have all kinds of festivals. It's often the way they organize the episodes. And, you know, someone gets murdered, right? And yeah. then the answer that they always kind of have this thing where they go, well, should we continue with the festival? The answer is always yes. Yes. It doesn't matter if one or two or three people have been murdered. They still do it. Yeah. Nothing, yeah. I mean, in real life, obviously, if someone got murdered in a town, everything would be shut down. Yeah, right. I mean, they wouldn't well, continue so common, having the yeah. fair. Yeah, yeah. But it's so common there. Yeah. But I always thought that was funny. I always laugh when they when they're like, well, should we still go on? I wonder, you know, with the yeah. fate. Uh, um, of course. And the answer is, like, we can't stop now. We put in so much preparations yeah. or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, you know, it, it's the cottage industry there, you know, where, you know, all the tents and all the food and all the catering and all the people. I mean, it's just amazing to me that people have so much time to go to these. But, you know, it's it's the, the center part of the town uh, or, or the center to the life of the town. So anyway, so the w- first way, the first lesson to avoid getting killed in midsummer is don't go to the festivals because there's a lot of murders that are happening there. And ridiculous ones, too, like um, one of Cully's boyfriends buys it with an arrow in the back, just like walking down the middle of this, you know, uh, you know, outdoor festival, just, you know, there's like an archery sort of, you know, set up and he's just walking and waving to Cully and just oh, buys yeah. it with an arrow it's in the suitor, back. Right. And yeah, yeah, he gets, he gets killed. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it, it's ridiculous. So, all right. So that's the first lesson. Don't go to the village festivals. The se- Here's the second lesson. Rule number two, stay out of the woods. Okay. The woods, right? A lot of people die in the woods. Festivals. Rule number two refers to this place and others like it. Now, at first glance, these woods are a picture, an absolute haven of wildlife, a twitcher's dream, the perfect place for a country stroll, perhaps. Or perhaps not. So there's probably maybe like 10, 12, 15 percent of the murders on the show. And there's a lot of them that happen in the woods, uh, related to the woods, body in the woods, things like that. And one of the characters on the show had a pretty funny line about this, so I just wanted to play this clip. To survive in the woods in midsummer, I just wouldn't go anywhere near them. Um, You'd probably be stumbling over bodies left, right, and center anyway. It'd be a pretty dangerous place to hang out. The, The woods aren't like the American, you know, wilderness where there's, you know, miles, square miles, upon square miles. England's a small country. 
So they're just based on the number of murders that happened in the woods. This guy's right. You would be stumbling over bodies trying to get away from the killer. You'd be tripping over another dead body that another killer had, uh, you know, foisted upon the world. So how do uh, they even have cemeteries there? Because they would be so full. I, I, I mean, know. it's just crazy. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, the, the murder rate's got to be like like 30 percent of the population. Oh, yeah. Per capita, the murder rate is worse than any <laughs> inner city, as we'll talk about. Um, yeah. Yeah. So the, the, the third lesson uh, to survive is one that you alluded to before. So let's hear from George on this, and then, and then we'll chime in on it. Rule number three, do not join a local interest group. So you mentioned that a big part of what Joyce does is join all these different interest groups. And interest groups or hobby groups or, you know, whatever you want to call it, are the center plot line of uh, about what ninety percent of the shows? Oh yeah. Well, Something I mean, like a lot that. of these are pensioners, right? Retirees, yeah. and it's like that's what they do, right? So that's obviously, the audience is going to identify with that. Hey, I'm part of the local book club or whatever. Right. Um, right. But yeah, if you're part of these, there's always some contention there. There's always some rivalry and jealousy that can inevitably lead to murder. Yep, and and George has a comment on that as well, really, real quick here. Could be a book club, craft club, or even a sports club. In midsummer, envy and greed dominate these societies. If you must join a social club, watch your back, no matter how innocent things may seem. And don't get too competitive, because that leads to jealousy. And jealousy can lead to you-know-what. So, yeah, totally. Again, a central plot of all these things is somebody pisses off somebody else in their cooking club or their writer club or their painting club or the bell ringing club or the choir club. And, and that inevitably leads to murder uh, or multiple murders, as as we'll find out. Again, it's like probably by my rough estimation, at least 60 60 to 70 percent of the murders that I can recall involve some sort of club. Right. Yeah. Um, all right. So now we're getting into some, uh, you know, maybe tip more typical ways where, where people come to bad ends. So here's the, the fourth lesson. Fall in love with the wrong person in midsummer, and you really are inviting the kiss of death. It's the age old curse of the love triangle. Boy meets girl. Boy falls in love with girl. Boy finds girl in bed with best friend. Boy savagely slaughters both of them with an axe. Well, Love triangles, of course, are a common source of murder in, in shows. Here's a colleague talking about it a little bit. Everybody who has extramarital sex in Midsummer Murders will die. Um, it's kind of as simple as that, really. That's the rules. And then finally, you know, George's, uh, you know, advice here on how to survive. The golden rule for men around here is keep it in your pants. If you can't, don't get caught. So, again, many, many plots involve some Lothario or somebody having an affair or, you know, whatever it is. And it inevitably ends with murders or multiple murders or a, a circle of murders where somebody murdered somebody and that person murdered somebody else and, or somebody's a spouse murdered somebody else. It's, it's just craziness. It, but there it happens are multiple- again and again. 
Right. There are multiple affairs per episode, and oftentimes those are used as misdirection, right? right so you have right. all these suspects, and, oh, she had an affair with them, so she's a suspect or whatever. Right. But oftentimes it's used as a way of misdirecting from the actual crime, which may be something totally different. But sometimes it is the the motive, you know? Yeah. So it's it's, yeah, I mean, it's just an excuse to have a lot of lascivious sex on the show. That, basically. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And, and by the way, you mentioned misdirection. That is sort of the formulaic part of the show is it, it's built into every show where, you know, that you think, you know, who the murderer is in the beginning and they lead you down a particular path and it never turns out to be the obvious. And it's always sort of like, ah, oh, you should have, you know, thought about it as the butler kind of thing. You know, you didn't, no, I feel like with some of these shows, they just have a pair of dice and they just assign the characters numbers and they roll and that's yeah. what they come up with the murder because it could be anybody. And it's not really guessable. It's not like you're like, oh, I figured it out because it doesn't really work by that logic because some of the stuff is so outlandish and so far fetched that it's not really I don't think it's really designed for you to figure out. I mean, I've probably guessed some of them, but it's like, you know, usually you kind of pick the least likely person or you pick this other person. But there's sometimes where the motive is not something you even learn until later. Like, oh, well, she had some family history and there's a rivalry going back 6,000 years or whatever. You know, there's a lot of that too. There's a lot of history of the region, which we'll talk about. And there's a lot of that, those kind of motivations, which you could never know unless you knew it. Right. right. And they don't often introduce that those facts early on. Well, the way to solve the murder is just that when they set up the sweet, innocent person who you are not supposed uh, supposed to suspect, that's usually the murder. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. really the way to, to figure it out. And like the guy who, like, you know, drives through the town, flipping people off, you know, getting mud on people, uh, you know, being angry, you know, all that kind of stuff. And you say, oh, he must be the bad guy. He's never the bad guy. You know, he's, he's often the dead. victim. He's yeah, probably one of dead. the victims. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, here's uh, rule number five, lesson five. Uh, a classic example. If people know you're specifically waiting for a drink or some food, don't touch it. You might as well put a label on it saying poison this now because around here, the chances are that somebody already has. Lots of poisonings, lots and lots of poisonings. In fact, there's one episode, forget the name of it, where somebody's poisoned when the killer uh, forces poison salad into their mouth. And it's, <laughs> <laughs> do you remember that there one? There must be easier ways of poisoning. I mean, there's, yeah. yeah. There's like a lot of food stuff. There's one I think where someone's drowned in gazpacho. Yeah, yeah, you put, yeah, exactly, <laughs> I mean, it's like, exactly. It's like it's really just to be. Yeah, it's black comedy. It's pure black comedy. It it's is. pure absurdity, and it's like yeah. There's there's must be more efficient ways of murdering somebody. Yeah, lots of poisoning of food, lots of poisoning of wines, lots of poisoning of beer. You, you, you name it. Um, the sixth lesson, I don't have a clip here, but it's like it, lots of things, bad shit happens in churches or around churches or near churches. Yes. Um, so, you know, don't go to a church, right? I mean, that, that's kind of the deal. And then the, the final lesson, right? If you want to escape Midsummer alive, there's one final lesson that's really the best one of all. And, and Cully has some advice here. The last and final lesson, but also a lesson that has a strange twist in the tale. Be a murderer, you're not going to die yourself, and you're going to get away with it. I hate to advocate that, but that's the way it is in midsummer. So they, they always get caught. She says to get away with it. They always get caught. 
But the murderers are always carted off alive out of Midsummer and presumably into jail. But they're always they're always they always are alive. They don't, actually, that's themselves. not true. There are some where there's su- double suicides, oh, okay. which I'll talk about. And there's actually some. Yeah, there's somewhere where someone else murders the murderer. There's there's a couple episodes where there are two murderers. And the one person knows that they murdered someone, and so they murder them. So uh-huh. there's actually two. So you could still die. Really, I think the best lesson is just not to go there at all. Yeah. Uh, you know, but but in general, you're right. I'd say 95% of the time, the murder is, is, and I'll talk about the, there's actually a difference with how the murders are solved during the Tom Barnaby years, how things wrap up. For the most part, there's a few exceptions and the John Barnaby years. The John Barnaby years have a much more dramatic finish. And yeah. I'll talk about that in my eval. But anyway. Okay. Anyway, so those are the lessons. I'll, I'll let Kali sort of quickly sum up all the ways. So if you're paying attention, these are the ways to survive Midsummer. My advice to people to, to survive in Midsummer would probably be not to live there for a start. If you're going to have to live there, though, stay in, be celibate, don't go into the woods, don't go to a fete, don't go to church. Sorry, but... So there you go. So Cully, yeah, you know, there you is, go. Yeah. a student of, of how, to, how to survive there. So, all right, let me talk about uh, a couple of my, my favorite shows. One you mentioned before called Ring Out Your Dead, uh, which there's a special interest group, which is the center of all these murders, and it's a bell ringing group. Now, when I watched this episode, I thought this is the dumbest fucking thing I've ever seen. There's a club, very ardent people, who are into bell ringing in a church, like and and like the belfry bell ringing, you know, like the big huge bells where they have to do it in some kind of sequence, yeah. and you know the physical sort of like pulling down on the big heavy ropes and and ringing the bells. And uh, I'm gonna play a little uh, clip of this uh, just so you get the, the the sense of it. Joining a midsummer society um, can sometimes be a dangerous thing. Um, I've been in a bell ringing. Uh, Club. The club in question was in the episode Ring Out Your Dead. That was crap. And a particularly bloody episode it was too. Three members of the local bell ringing club are murdered in the run-up to the best bell ringing in midsummer competition. But not even the sight of blood dripping from the belfry can deter them. You'd have thought they'd have given up and gone home, really. Bell ringers are at risk, let's leave this out. But he convinced everybody he just had to win this thing. And so managed to keep them ringing away as they died one by one. So the leader of this bell ringing club, you know, there's like seven or eight of them. They're getting killed one by one in these grisly ways. And they kept going at it. You know, they, you know, the show must go on for the best bell ringer in Midsummer. And it, the, the murders were more and more ridiculous as they went on. Of course, this episode featured a ton of different affairs of, you know, people and, you know, just all. I think this particular episode had pretty much all the ways you die in Midsummer. Um, almost as many as one I'll talk about in, this, in a minute called Judgment Day, which had all of them, basically. So anyway, I was just like, if you wanted the most obscure kind of club you can imagine, we talked about, you know, there's painting clubs and acting clubs and writers clubs and all this stuff. What about bell ringing? Yep. No, well, it's something. very, that's a, this is a very British thing. It is. I mean, it's, it's there's crazy. a huge tradition of this. And I think that's one of the strengths actually, because 
it shows you, I mean, I'm a total Anglophile. I mean, I love British music, obviously, because I love the Beatles and progressive rock as we, you know, we love the Beatles, Uh, but it's like, I just love all the, I even really into British history and Kings and Queens and all this. And um, I'm really, I I find this really fascinating, this whole bell ringing thing, because it's a really complex, elaborate thing that's, it seems absurd, like Jeff says, but it's so British. And and yeah. this show is so so British. I mean, it's it's British. To, it's kind of almost Monty Python esque in its Britishiness. Like it's ridiculous, right? Yeah. And this is one of them. The bell ringing thing just seems natural. And again, it's influenced by the Lord Peter Wimsey book, The Nine Tailors. Um, and uh, so there's a, a huge tradition of this in England. That's a yeah. good episode too. And that's, uh, you're going to talk about another episode, but that's enough. This is bring out your dead is another episode where it's an old lady who's super powerful, who can kill yeah, <laughs> who kills exactly. like a bunch of young people who should be able to overpower her. It's really crazy. Like, yeah. um, yeah. Anyway. And at the end, she's kind of carted off. She's like, Oh yeah, I'm the murderer. Yeah. She's insane. Yeah. She's actually yeah. mentally ill. And there's, and her, her motive is based on some old history, you know, yeah. like 300 years old or something. That's very common. As I mentioned. Yeah. Mental illness, uh, a, a woman who's mentally ill and who's institutionalized is also the, um, you know, the murder in what I'll talk about in a second called judgment day. But before that, I want to talk about just funny deaths. I talked about the woman who was killed by the wheel of cheese there was another funny death scene um, that when I first saw this episode, I was laughing my ass off about it. And then I came across this clip of John Nettles uh, talking about it. It's his favorite death scene, too. And I was like, oh, that's good. So I want to play John talking about uh, this particular death. And with a body count approaching that of a small war, what's been the most memorable murder method? My favorite it was uh, this lovely actor, Oliver Ford Davis, and he played an arrogant wine buff. And his demise was spectacular, to say the least. He was pinioned to his lawn, beautifully manicured lawn, by croquet hoops. Is this some kind of joke? And he was trebucheted to death, you know, that whole big Roman catapult thing. Trebucheted to death, and trebuchet slung bottles of his best Chateau Lafitte at him. So this old guy is pinned to his lawn, and, the, and the, you know, the murderer who's in cahoots with his wheel-bound chair wife who's directing the action from a window was, was flinging, uh, cla- you know, vintage wine bottles at him from a distance, and they were landing, crashing all over him, and, um, and he's screaming because he's upset that the wine is crashing next to his head, his most precious bottles of wine, of course, eventually hit him and, and, and do him in. Complete ridiculousness. Uh, it was just over the top. It was supposed to be funny. It was a goof, and it, and it was. The last episode I just kind of want to talk about here is one called Judgment Day. It features a young Orlando Bloom who, you know, plays a bad guy, a uh, bad, uh, you know, character who's killed. Um, and this is one of those, there's love triangles in this. The uh, Orlando Bloom character is having uh, a relationship with the daughter of the woman who winds up murdering him. Although, you know, she's supposed to, you know, there's a misdirection because she poisoned herself slightly to make it seem like she was victim. She poisoned somebody else who died. Um, she pitchforked uh, Orlando Bloom in the gut. Um, Again, another old lady, like she, she basically shoves a pitchfork. He's like, 
she shoves a pitchfork into his torso, yeah. murdering him. And he's not able to defend himself against this old lady. I mean, that's what the part of the misdirection, right? Because you're thinking, there's no way this little old lady can like pitchfork this young man and kill him and overpower him. But, you know, of course you'd be wrong. Yeah. And of course she's episode, like, because she's clinically insane as it turns out, right? Yeah. Um, th- another character, an actor in this episode is a guy who was in the HBO series Rome. Um, who's a famous British actor, uh, famous there. Uh, his last name is like uh, Menzies or something like that. Like I forget his first name, but I he, don't remember. Yeah, you, I mean, if you've seen Rome, you'd recognize him in a second. He's the uh, uh, you know partner in crime over over Lando Bloom. Uh, they are robbing uh, various uh, places. Um, the other uh, sub story in this particular episode is they rob a house of a guy who used to be a, an old timey actor. Shakespearean actor and his wife was a famous actress and everyone thinks she's dead, but she was horribly disfigured in a car accident. He's hiding her in the house. And of course, Cully is in this episode unemployed, um, having nothing to do, but she's, she's writing some story about the history of this particular theater. Um, probably, uh, you know, pays her about, you know, 50 quid. And, uh, you know, that's what she does for a living in between acting gigs, apparently not a very successful actress, uh, in the show. So anyway, um, we talked about this being, uh, you know, parody of English society, um, and the number of murders. And I, I want to play a couple clips of, uh, John Nettles talking about, um, some of the, the, the murder count. So here is, uh, John. People abroad love to see caricatures of, um, of the English way of life. Some people take it very seriously. I've had letters from Russian people in Russia who, God knows, uh, think that it's real, that think that English society is like that, that the murders are <laughs> as high in the leafy lanes of Buckinghamshire as they are on the streets of Chicago. So people around the world don't necessarily fully understand that this is a parody at times, is what uh, John is saying. And then, um, you know, some of the level, some of the numbers of murders per episode are so ridiculous. You would think that they would run out of people. And in fact, um, at one uh, point in the show's history, they reduced the number of murders per show because it was getting so ridiculous. And this is uh, John talking about that. Midsummer, I don't know, we killed more people you shake a stick at. And uh, it was thought at one time that it was getting a little bit ludicrous, and therefore the, the murder count should be reduced somewhat. Uh, when uh, we tried to do that, there were complaints. <laughs> people didn't like it very much. And that's part of the joy of it, is the, uh, part of the joke, if you like, uh, is, the, is the sheer number of, of, of murders uh, in, um, in Midsummer. So they reduced the number of murders and people were like, no, 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 you need to have that murder count uh, higher. So people like that ridiculous, over-the-top nature of it. Yeah, Um, the body count is about four on average there um, because it's confusing because sometimes there's usually someone who's killed before. Like in in Badger Strip, I think it's a total of six or seven people that die because there's a character named Bella that's killed earlier. And then, of course, the murderers have a suicide pact at the end, so they die. But there are some episodes where there's just one, and that could have been when this happened. Yeah, yeah. But people don't like it. They said, no, we want four or five murders uh, per show. Anyway, um, again, this is a a parody of English society, but also a reflection of it. And it harkens back to a nostalgia and maybe a time that maybe existed, maybe didn't exist. And I want to play 
another clip of John Nettles talking about English society and its changes over time. And then I want to talk about um, one of the show uh, producers, runners, uh, Brian Trumay, who kind of got into some trouble. Um, we'll talk about it in a second. So here's John talking about the changes in English society over time and the show reflecting it or not, as it were. English now, of course, our society has changed much in the same way as yours has, I imagine. We used to be a class-ridden society uh, full of all deference, lords and ladies, etc. and so on, with the county set and everything else. But we've become, over the years, uh, a multicultural meritocracy, I suppose you could call it that. The rot set in, really, when they allowed the television cameras into Buckingham Palace. And they allowed the hoi polloi, the poor people, to see how the rich lived, you see. <laughs> and the aristocrats lived. And it's all downhill from then. I remember when I was a child, we used to call our school teachers sir. Now you call them Jim or something like that, you know, and it's not the same, not the same at all. So it's, uh, to be English now is to belong to a very uncertain, difficult society. So, you know, he's contrasting sort of the way that life is presented in Midsummer with the actual English uh, British uh, society. And that was done on purpose. Uh, and one of the show's uh, producers, creators, Brian Trumay, Got into some trouble because, you know, when challenged about, as you talked about, Slip, the, you know, overwhelming exclusive whiteness of the society in, a, in Midsommar when British society certainly isn't that way and hasn't been for a very, very long time. Brian uh, said that uh, we are a cosmopolitan society in this country, but if you watch Midsummer, you wouldn't think so. Um, he basically said, uh, I've never uh, been picked up on that, but he wouldn't want to change how Midsummer is presenting uh, you know, this all white rural uh, Britain society and even acknowledging that he's uh, not politically correct, but he designed it to appeal to a certain audience. And he said, we just don't have ethnic minorities involved because it wouldn't be the English village with them. It just wouldn't work. Um, and that a lot of people you might, you know, see why I took some offense at that and wondered why Englishness couldn't include other races or other people who are represented in the society, obviously. And he said, well, maybe it should, but he doesn't want to do that uh, because he's making something that appeals to a certain audience and uh, it's successful and he doesn't uh, want to change it. And you might guess that this approach was not very popular with uh, viewers who are from, you know, ethnic minorities who found the show, you know, strikingly unpopular because obviously it didn't represent anything um, that they could directly identify with and, you know, and maybe indirectly, but anyway. What's, before we jump on, what's interesting about this is this was in 2014 where he said these things, I guess. Yeah. Um, actually, that's about when the show started to get better in that regard. So if you watch the new episodes, it's completely different. There he was are, kicked off are, the show, by the way. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. Yeah. There you go. So he was kicked off the show for that. I did not know about all this. Um, I just observed that it has changed. Right. Yeah. So in the newer episodes, um, maybe around this time, maybe slightly after this, it started to change. And you'll see like in season in the newer seasons, there are much more uh, people of different backgrounds. Like you see a lot of Indian British people, like I mentioned, the um, Cam, the uh, pathologist. Um, and you also see um, the 
uh, a lot of the characters in the in the shows having especially Indian and Pakistani uh, origins and then African British people as well. You know, right. you you definitely and even Asian, East Asian as well. You definitely see that in the subsequent episode. So there must after that shakeup, things have changed. And I think it works. I don't think that is the problem with the show. If there's a problem with the newer episodes, that's not it. Like it seems perfectly reasonable and it and the people fit in just fine. You know, they seem just as British. It seems just as pastoral to me. Um, but there are issues with the newer episodes, but I will talk about those in my email. So we'll move on from there. Yeah. So um anyway, I I mean I, I think the show is really kind of over the top, you know, parody in a lot of ways, which you know, maybe this isn't a fair statement, but my you know, characterization of a lot of British humor is a little more subtle at times, although you could point to some Monty Python stuff and, you know, related being completely ridiculous over the top. But this show is just, you know, kind of crazy uh, over the top uh, sort of stuff. Shifting gears a little bit, I, I do want to call out, uh, you know, a couple things about Joyce and Cully. Now, my wife absolutely hates the Joyce and Cully characters, can't stand them. And, you know, I, I'm going to kind of relay her feelings on this because uh, I think they're amusing and funny. And, and I kind of actually largely agree with it. So uh, feministically speaking, she would say that um, they're just cardboard cutout characters that seem to be conceived of, if not the character names um, or backgrounds, but conceived of written by men. They were really idle in a lot of ways. They're not really fully formed characters. There's plot complications in various ways. Um, to sort of, you know, be misdirection or complicate the lives or annoy, you know, Barnaby or whatever it is. They kind of serve to, they're they're kind of there to serve the character of Barnaby, Tom right. Barnaby. I think, I think they're there to kind of flesh out his personal life a little bit and give a little bit of light humor and, uh, you know, kind of show him as a family man. And that's very important. It's the same thing that, I mean, Sarah and Sykes, the dog and Betty, the baby, it's the same thing they do for John Barnaby. They're there as yeah. kind of supports and they participate about as much in the murders as Joyce and Cully do. Yeah. I mean, Joyce's main function is to be a terrible cook, which I'll get to in a second. And just to be in all of these clubs where these murders happen and she's a bystander and a complication factor. So here's Joyce talking about Joyce. I've done a lot with local history, that kind of stuff. Um, I always like to try and help out, you know. But when Joyce joined a watercolor class, you can guess what happened. Well, the watercolor uh, class she's in, of course, she's one of her 8,000 clubs that she participates in. And she observes, you know, the lecherous uh, art teacher coming on to a bunch of the other middle-aged ladies. And then, of course, she finds a dead body in the bushes. Um, so, you know, Joyce is always part of these things, and she's always off to something um, as, a, as a plot complication. Not really, to your point, um, just sort of a function of moving the story along. All right. So we talked a little bit about uh, Joyce being a terrible cook. Um, Barnaby, the character, always looks forward to eating at restaurants, any place where Joyce isn't cooking. And there's a lot of jokes about that. Um, Joyce was a housewife, as you point out. And uh, my wife's point about this is if she couldn't learn how to cook after 25 years, she's a frittata. Right. Like it's like an mm -hmm. accountant that can't add. And it's not like, you know, it takes some skill and talent to be like a Michelin starred chef. 
It doesn't take a lot of skill or talent to follow a recipe of something that's edible. And after 25 years, Joyce can't get that together. She's just an imbecile, uh, you know, and it's, and it's supposed to be one of these things where it's sort of charming that she can't cook, you know, and it's used for comic amusement. But it's like a, another trope that she points out of in movies of women being a klutz and, you know, can't, you know, they have their life together, but they can't just, you know, keep from tripping over their own feet. And it's supposed to be sort of endearing and charming. And it's just a, a ridiculous and pathetic uh, a trope. Here, here's Joyce about the, her cooking again. But in midsummer, even if food doesn't kill you, it can still be criminal. The bark for breakfast, is it? It's Lawrence's instructions. Joyce doesn't think she's a bad cook, you know. Joyce uh, just is just part of her life cooking, um, and it's one of the more charming aspects of the program. I think that's a, a character thing of Joyce's is she's an absolutely terrible cook, and and the family never tells her how terrible she is. Does does Joyce not eat her own cooking? Like, yeah, it, I don't know. It, like, like that. It's just so stupid that you know it's like everyone can't even choke down her food. But does Joyce eat it and go, "Well, this is great"? Does Joyce eats at these restaurants? She can't tell the difference between, wow, why does the food at the restaurant taste really good and my stuff can, you know, knock over a horse because it's so bad? It's just dumb. Uh, you know, you know, my wife thinks so. Um, on Cully, uh, Cully was really there, even more of a just a plot complication device. We mentioned her a little bit in, in some of the prior episodes. But, you know, Cully was in some of the earlier seasons was really this there to lust after Barnaby's partners. <laughs> and, you know, she's always after his latest partner and, you know, causing a lot of tension with Barnaby when Barnaby finds out or suspects that his partner is, you know, banging Collie. Uh, it's just really kind of just eye rolling. Like, these are the female characters on the show. This is what they do. And so it was it's very just annoying um, and angers uh, my wife to no end. Um, in fact, most of the female characters were either the murderer uh, because, you know, they are seeking revenge over being thrown over for some other woman kind of thing until um, later in the show's run where, you know, you mentioned like the medical examiner pathologist was a was a woman uh, character. And, and yeah, like the that. last three have been women. Yeah. So. so anyway, but in the early part of the show, the ones that we mostly watched, it was just so over the top ridiculous that it just absolutely just frustrated and angered uh, my wife there. Anyway, um this show is popular all throughout the world. We mentioned that. Um, here's a little funny clip on uh, John Nettles meeting the, uh, the Queen. So I thought it'd be funny to play this. Her Majesty the Queen, God bless her, is... Uh, <laughs> well, she's one of your fans. ...is a fan of the programme. I, I did some groundwork on that, though, because I met her at the Guildhall some two years ago, and I did apologise profusely for killing off all her subjects. <laughs> and uh, I bowed and scraped, and she said she wouldn't like to live in midsummer uh, because she'd die. And I thought, well, it's, it's a beginning here. This is an inn. And uh, now I've got a, a little medal. So I'm going to Buckingham Palace next week to, uh, to receive it. And looking forward to it very much, I am. And, and wow, how British is that? Looking forward to it very much, I am. And the fact that he said uh, that he bowed and scraped, I, you know, just got to love that. The most British guy ever, right? Anyway, um, so that was sort of funny. And it's very popular all around the world. Uh, some of the clips you heard were from an interview on a Norwegian uh, talk show. 
um, and they were very big fans of the show. What was odd about this one uh, interview show is the other guest on the show was Slash. So uh, sitting next to him or like across from him in the little uh, you know interview area was uh, was Slash. So you can imagine that quite the contrast in interview topics there. Um, moving on here, uh, the movie Hot Fuzz uh, with Simon Pegg and, and made by um, Edgar Wright and that crew. Um, very, very funny movie. If you haven't seen it, you definitely should. But it is essentially a parody of Midsommar. And it is sort of a parody of a parody. And it's it's very well done, but it pretty much covers all of the tropes that we just talked about um, as far as all the way people die and the life in the village and, you know, the misdirection and all of that kind of, you know, all these things are done for the greater good, as I keep saying in Hot Fuzz. Um, but again, it's uh, the sort of hidden genteel murderer thing. Um, and it's a parody of a parody, which if you haven't seen Midsommar, you may not know um, that what Hot Fuzz is about. But nevertheless, worth watching anyway, for sure, because it's great. All right, getting into my evaluation here. Here are the things, uh, you know, that I like about the show. Final evaluation, I should say, right? Uh, one, the absurdist humor. I like absurdist humor in general. I think it's funny, uh, a way to tackle things. Um, the cast taking absurd stuff seriously, kind of like the Leslie Nielsen character at Airplane, never gets old to me. I like it. Um, the contrast in expectations of, you know, the, the conceit of being a contrast and expectations, the genteel society, but murderous, old people getting it on instead of young, hot people, which is gross, but also kind of funny, you know, both at the same time. The ridiculous deaths we talked about. And then the, the other meme that I want to talk about, too, is we'll definitely be posting this on the Instagram, which is um, this thing where it, it's a split screen thing where it says the British as seen by Americans. And it's sort of like the cast of Downton Abbey, all very proper, well-dressed uh, upper crest English people. And then the bottom part, it says that the British is seen by Europeans and it's a bunch of drunken soccer hooligans <laughs> passed out on the street. With a, it, right. So I yeah. think it's funny because, you know, this show sort of plays on that a little bit. Um, apparently in the Scandinavians also have the American view. It's like, wow, this is what English society must really be like the, the midsummer way when it really is drunken soccer hooligans passed out on the street um, and the police trying to revive them. Uh, anyway, the other thing about this show is it's sort of the love boat of England, right? Where you have all these, you know, famous actors who kind of have, have blown through there and have been on the on the cast. It's sort of funny, but it's also kind of a negative. I don't think it has quite the sort of mark of shame that Love Boat uh, does. It's a little bit higher production values and better done, but but nevertheless, um, what I don't like about it is it's a parody, but it's not a really clever one, and it's sort of on the nose. Once you, it's repetitive too, right? Like, so once you get the idea of the joke and what they're goofing on, it's the same thing every episode. Um, and some people may like that repetitiveness and it might bring them some sort of comfort. Um, but, you know, if it, if it doesn't, then it's sort of like, okay, so there's going to be four or five murders. It's going to be misdirection. It's going to be the sweet old lady, that kind of thing. We already talked about the, the nepotism of the Barnaby clan and you explain why that is. But anyway, those are a few things that I kind of roll my eyes about. Wrapping up, evaluation-wise, I said, you know, here, look, on one hand, it'd be difficult to go short on this show because it's run for 23, going on 24 seasons. It's extremely popular all over the world. 
Um, that's pretty impressive. There's not a lot of shows who have lasted that long. I can only think of a couple in American shows, like The Simpsons, I think, went on that long, and maybe there's a few others. Um, one of the popular things is you have the juxtaposition for some nostalgia about this old British way that Nettles was talking about. Um, and a large percent of people, um, as you know, the show keeps going on, have never experienced that. It, it's not, as we were saying, right. really British society. So it's people who like the show. You talked about joking about only old people like it um, and it's for old people, but old people are going to die out. And younger people may be looking at this as sort of a, a atavistic thing and not really like, what is this a throwback to something that never really existed or it's a time that they don't really want to revisit? I'm not so certain that future generations, it's going to hold as much appeal as being sort of juxtaposition between the way things used to be and maybe the way they are now. Maybe the dark humor will, will, will be a draw. But again, I think it's somewhat repetitive. I think overall, I got to go slightly short here. I, I think there's going to always be some market for Midsummer. I think there's, it's appealing in a lot of ways. I think you'll maybe talk about some of those in your evaluation. But I think over time, it will slightly wane. I'm not super strongly short, slightly short. Um, I just think that as the, as the decades go on, as England's population becomes more and more multicultural and all that, it may not play as well to, to future generations. So that's where I'm going to land uh, slightly short on this. So turning it over to you. All right. So, yeah, I think um, as far as the quality of the show, it's not that good, right? I mean, it's it's one of these shows where early on it had some, it's fun, you know, it's enjoyable. It, as it's gone on, it keeps getting more ridiculous to kind of deal with the constraints of its limited setting, right? Yeah. It's got this village setting and they've, do, they've done things that are pretty ridiculous, which I'm going to talk about some of them. Um, it might be the dumbest thing that I like a lot because I do enjoy <laughs> the show, but I'm not saying a lot because I do like some dumb stuff. Yeah. Let's just say that. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, what I really like, and, and I'll talk about why. I think the show has a lasting appeal because I'm definitely, you know, longer than Jeff on this one. Um, and one of the things, so, so things I really like about it is the first is the setting. Yeah. Um, I mean, in that um, surviving Midsummer documentary, they actually show map and you could find tons of maps people have made. I mean, it's like almost Tolkien, like these maps of the cost and area where people have really gone into the region and this fantasy world. Cause that's what it is. That's right. right. This 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 fantasy world that's filmed around Oxfordshire and Buckinghamshire, where you have these villages like Badger's Drift, Midsummer Worthy, Midsummer Mallow, Midsummer Parva, etc. You know, it's it's very it's got its own little rich little world. And I find that to be very escapist and enjoyable. And it just looks amazing. I mean, you know, you see Barnaby standing there talking with one of his partners in front of this cottage that's like. 500 years old yep. with a giant straw thatched roof. You know, they, they're in these idyllic pubs. It's just beautiful to look at. The music is great. You know, we played the theme at the beginning with the theremin, the creepy theremin. There's, you know, there's some other clips Jeff played where you can hear the music in the background. It's fantastic. The filming is well done. It's beautiful looking. Uh, the production values are super good. Um, and the acting is all pretty good. I mean, there's some definitely some hammy acting, but it's well, it's kind of that Richard Burton style Shakespearean hammy yeah. acting that's, yeah, yeah. you know, kind of appealing. Um, and I think that's really good. And I think it fits a niche 
Um, and this is my central thesis of everything I'm going to say is that it kind of fills a niche of what you're looking for, right? I think with sometimes with TV, we're looking for something that's really good quality, that's engaging, that's educational. And other times we're just looking for this thing that just kind of soothes us like comfort food, right? Sure. It's not It's not going to get, you know, I, I was even thinking as I was looking over this show, you know, one of my big negatives of Fantasy Island was that I couldn't remember the specific plots. And I just remember the, you know, the the kind of trappings of the show with Mr. Rourke and Tattoo. Same thing with Ben Zomer. A lot of times I had to go back and revisit some of these some of these i remembered fairly well especially the more outrageous ones that involve a lot more kind of pop cultural references which i'll get into i remembered but i don't remember some of the best ones very well even badger's drift took me a while to kind of get back into and i had to watch it again um it didn't really stick with me individual plots because they're all kind of the same thing it's kind of a formula and even though they'll do these different deaths and things, the, the general flow of the show is the same. And I don't, I think it's, it's, I use it, I use the show. I don't necessarily watch the show in the same way I watch a show I consider to be of high quality. I don't gain the same things. It's relaxation porn. It's relaxation, right? So yeah. I have this thing, this infuser, it's, you know, you put some oil in it, like lavender. I sit there on yeah, the couch. My wife has and that I, too, yeah. Yeah, and I I maybe have a little weed and I watch like Star Trek what? or something. You know? Yeah. Weed? Yeah, it's perfect for Midsummer, And I fall asleep. Half the time I'm falling asleep while watching these episodes. Yeah. This is like my Sunday night rituals to watch something like this. Another Midsummer or another kind of British mystery. Because it, you know, I'm a little stressed about going to work the next day. I want something that's just going to be soothing to me. Now, I'll go into why a show that has brutal murders and, you know, affairs and yeah. sex and uh, <laughs> betrayal is soothing to me. But it's it's really just kind of, um, uh, you know, it's really it's really true. And I think the way I use this show may be the way that others use it too. these kind of shows, because they're kind of entertaining in a way that's light. Um, and kind of ridiculous, but you can kind of escape into them and not, you know, they're just kind of brain dead in a way. And it's perfect for this kind of getting down into the, into sleep. You know, it's kind of, it just relaxes me and soothes me. And I'll go into a little bit more of that later in my eval. Um, yeah, it's funny. Cause I mean, it's gotta have the highest death rate of just about any drama. Um, but it's somehow not stressful. Well, I can There's introduce not you to slow TV. And that might also help you uh, achieve the same thing without the over-the-top murders. Uh, oh, okay. Looking at uh, high-definition recordings of people walking around these English villages with the natural sound and stuff like that. Different topics. Oh, okay, for so maybe, time. maybe, yeah, maybe that has a uh, maybe that has the same effect without the murders. Although yeah. I do like to be entertained with some of the the stuff like that. So anyway, um, I wanted to go through an, a few notable episodes. And I also want to talk about the whole Tom Barnaby versus John Barnaby thing, because I have been watching the show the whole time. I think Jeff has mostly watched the Tom Barnaby thing. Now I will say when I was looking, I'm like, I'm like, what are the best episodes of the show? You know, what do people think are the best episodes of the show? And some of the ones Jeff mentioned are among those like judgment day frequently comes up. Um, obviously the pilot I'll be talking about in a little more detail. Cause I do think that's the best episode so far but when you look at best of john barnaby's episodes are nowhere to be found everybody agrees the golden age of the show was tom barnaby yeah. and i agree with that too in general i think the best the show had to offer were the early seasons even with the problematic you know over whiteness and oldness of the show which i'll talk about a little bit more 
Um, but I want to talk about a few episodes. So first of all is the killing of Badger's Drift. And I have some clips from this to play later when I talk more about the characters. But, um, you know, you have a lot of the tropes that are reused in the show just already established here. I think that um, what's interesting is I've listened to a few podcasts about this and listened to some other details. And what actually what's interesting is Carolyn Graham's book is way more hardcore than the show. They actually tone down some of the stuff. So in Badger's Drift, what you have is essentially a mystery that is involves some people being caught having sex. Uh, the woman sees them, she's killed, but there's all this misdirection because there are other motives, other affairs, right? There's a death earlier that's, that's flashback to of one of the characters who shot and one of the women who actually wanted to shoot her for another reason missed. And she ends up committing suicide. So there's a lot of deaths. There's more deaths. <laughs> but then there's also this mother and son um, uh, pair called the Rainbirds. Dennis Rainbird is the son. Iris Rainbird is the mother. Iris Rainbird is like kind of the town blackmailer. And she's spying on people. And she know, she ends up figuring out who's guilty. And they have this whole extortion plan. And Dennis Rainbird, oddly enough, is the very, must be very busy um, funeral director. And he is shown maybe to be homosexual, but in the book, him and his mother have a very close kind of gross relationship. Mm. And in the book, this is actually even more explicit, supposedly like they're, you know, supposedly they're licking and kissing each other and shit. It's oh. pretty, pretty nasty stuff. Yeah. Um, and of course the two people having sex, um, Emily Mortimer and actually, um, what's his name? Uh, I forget the actor's name. Uh, he's a very famous British actor, but he um, won for the King's Speech. That guy, you know, his pride Colin, and prejudice. Is it something Colin? Colin Firth. Yeah, so his yeah. brother, Michael Firth, actually plays uh, the one of the murderers. They, it turns out it's this couple who haven't or having an incestuous relationship. Mm, so it's like a brother and sister fucking. So that's what we're dealing with here in Midsummer. That's the kind of sex we're dealing with, right? Yeah. And there's, 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 but Badger Strip even. It, it establishes so many things. First of all, it establishes the whole idea of the best village award as you, as the show. Yeah. It's funny because these villages win the best awards yet they're murder capitals of England. Yeah. Um, so Badger's drift, which had, is made fun of in hot fuzz. Like I was talking about, like that's, the yeah, hot fuzz, I mean, obviously Edgar Wright is a massive fan of this show. Yeah. You know, he, uh, one way or the other, he decided to parody it. Um, yeah. and, um, uh, obviously, you know, as, as you talked about, Hot Fuzz is a parody of a lot of different things, but Midsummer is one of the main ones, right? Yeah. And and uh, old people being really good killers is is definitely in Hot Fuzz, Hot Fuzz as well. Yeah. So so, but there the Best Village Award is shown at the beginning of the of the episode. We see a sign that says they've won this year, this year, this year, this year. Right. Um, uh, obviously, 1997. Maybe they didn't win because of what happens in this episode, but. Who knows? I don't think the Village Awards uh, givers really care about murder, obviously, because many of most of the villages who, who have won, no doubt, have at least, uh, you know, 20 or 30 murders per year. Um, another one I really like is uh, season one, episode five. This is Death in Disguise. This is the one I talked about with the New Age cult. Yeah. And I really like the fact that and this is another adaptation of an original novel. So I really like the fact that Midsommar brings in a lot of this. There's another one with a weird kind of fraternal organization, like a Freemason organization called Night of the Stag. And they wear these antlers and there's these ceremonies. I fucking love this. Um, I really find this appealing. 
Another one I really like, Death of a Hollow Man. Interesting because it's actually about an adaptation of Amadeus, and we get introduced to um, one of Tully's first, or uh, Cully's first boyfriends, who is the lead. He plays Mozart in the play. Um, and uh, But this is really influenced by another British, another, not British, but New Zealand author named Nio Marsh, who wrote these books about the theater, uh, one called Light Thickens that's almost just like this uh, adaptation. So obviously, Carolyn Graham was really influenced by her. But it's a really over-the-top episode. There's even a, a scene in which uh, the actor playing Salieri in the play um, grabs a razor that's supposed to be taped over for his suicide scene, he's supposed to have a suicide scene where he slits his throat and the razor, of course, the tape was removed. And it turns out the murderer is the director of the play who's been having these scams. That's like a side thing. And he's killed all these people. And he, the guy slits his throat and for real on stage. So that's the kind of murder we have. Um, Jeff mentioned uh, Judgment Day. This is another absolute classic of the show, probably in the top five episodes. I mean, when you look at these lists online of people ranking, Judgment Day is one that always comes up um, about the psychotic woman who's eventually killed herself. So she's another murderer who doesn't escape because her husband poisons her when he realizes that she is the one doing the killings because she was actually a sociopath who had been previously um, put in a mental hospital for years. And then she becomes a murderer again. And she, of course, has super old people strength uh, yeah. because she's able to ram a pitchfork into the young and uh, virile, apparently, Orlando Bloom. Uh, that episode also has tons of affairs going on. Like Orlando Bloom is like with this with this woman's daughter, but he's also fucking these older women. And yeah. um, there's That's another episode part of the misdirection because you think one of the older women's husbands is the murderer because, you know, right. Like, uh, exactly. Who's a vet? who had blood on his, uh, you know, clothes. And it's a whole thing. Anyway. There's another episode called Dark Autumn that starts with the murder of a postman who apparently was fucking every single woman in town. Yeah. I mean, there are like four, five, six, seven. And again, it's he, misdirection. He always delivers. He always delivers. Again, it's misdirection because the guy who kills him, he originally kills him because of his treatment of women. But it's all about his mother who was like, and he has this elaborate scene at the end where there's a young uh, a constable who's a female who, um, of course, uh, Troy starts to get a little interested in. You know, she's attractive. Um, and he kind of lures her to this gym and has this old World War II music playing that's supposed to be, he wants her to basically become his mother and have have an affair with her it's just like fucked up but it's complete misdirection but just the 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 dark autumn is one of the ones with the most sex in it because this post office guy yeah he literally delivered to every older woman in town um so i wanted to talk about some of the crazy plots because i find these sometimes very entertaining uh, now one of the things the show does that i've often talked about in the past is as this formula kind of gets stale, you know, after being on for so many years, they, they kind of grab from the headlines a bit, uh, kind of in a law and order style way. And one episode uh, that amused me to no end was an episode called The Ghost of Costa Abbey. Now, this episode begins with a flashback to like the 1500s, and it shows a monk being boiled in oil. <laughs> uh, it, it's very violent, right? They show him being dropped into oil. And it turns out this monk is now a mascot for a new craft beer being launched by well, uh, the wait a second before he's, before he's dropped into that, he cursed everybody who... Oh, yeah, he had to curse. That's yeah. why there was a curse at ale, right? Yeah, yeah. 
but he's the inspiration for this ale. And then they flash forward to the brewery where they have a little puppet of him on display. And they create this beer called Cursed Ale, which is, of course, an IPA and very hoppy, they mentioned. Yeah, which um, is not and, typical of English IPAs, by the way. No, no. Uh, but what's even funnier is we have a little bit of comic relief as John, so this is a John Barnaby episode because it's season 20, episode one. And again, the brewer is um, uh, Indian and the owner is Indian. And then there's an African-American who works the breweries. Of course, he's murdered right away. Is it African-American um, or an African? African-British, sorry. African British, African. Um, so he he's murdered right away. But you can see that the um, the casting is very different in this season, this more recent season. But one of the funniest things is he goes, uh, John John Barnaby is, I guess, into beer and he goes to this real ale kind of festival and he gets some tokens to get this other beer. And he's got the craft, um, he's got the cursed ale, the IPA and, and, and the, 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 um, one of the guys in part of the real ale movement is like, Oh, that stuff, you know, he's all, he's all, I got this. It's rather good. And he's like, Oh, that stuff's garbage. They have to give that away. That's not, you know, real ale. That's, you know, that craft beer. And he, and, and John Barnaby says, well, I thought there was no difference between craft beer and real ale. And the whole place goes silent in shock. You know, the real <laughs> ale thing, you guys can look it up. We will link it on the Instagram is a big thing in Britain that started, you know, decades ago. That was probably a precursor to the craft beer movement. But these it's really funny because craft beer, you know, in the teens just became so huge. And so they kind of are reaching for the headlines. And, um, you know, it's almost like the Cursed Ale is like the uh, Pliny the Younger of of England, ah, of Costin. Um, nice. So anyway, it's really funny. Which, okay. which ironically, uh, maybe not are properly, is about to be released in a couple of weeks. Uh, Pliny oh, the yeah. Younger, yeah, here as yep. we're recording this. Anyway. So anyway, that one other episode I wanted to highlight from the same season, which is really funny, is Drawing Dead. So this, the twist of this episode is they have a village fate, but it's like Comic-Con. So they have a <laughs> Comic-Con in this town called Carver Valley, which is an, I had not heard of this town before in the previous episodes, but it's one of the towns in the Midsummer area. And they have all these people dressed up as superheroes. And there's a whole plot about a comic writer. It's just totally drawn from the headlines, right? Now, I wanted to talk about, so there, there's more ridiculous ones. Uh, there's, you know, the, the John Barnaby are definitely more absurd and they're definitely more pulling from the headlines. But one of the, probably the most hated episode of the show's history is actually in the Tom Barnaby years. It's his last season and it's called Blood on the Saddle. This is season 13, episode three. And it's a Wild West show in England. Mm. Um, and there's this whole plot around this Wild West show. And interestingly enough, this is one where they had one murder, only one oh, murder. Okay. Uh, but, uh, Actually, I could be wrong about that. Maybe there's two, but there's less murders in this one. But anyway, it's universally recognized as the absolute worst episode of the show, which is saying a lot because I'll get into more of the John Barnaby ones. Another one from the Tom Barnaby ones. Um, let's talk about uh, some deaths, right? Some some ridiculous deaths, right? So season 10, uh, there was an episode called The Axeman Cometh. And I always love this. Like Inspector Lewis has one of these, a couple of the other British shows. This is a rock and roll episode. Yeah. So this is the episode where a legendary blues rock band hired gun reunites. And there's a whole murder with this guy, the leader of the band, uh, who's a blues guitarist. And there's a scene later we'll, we'll play with Tom Barnaby from this. That is one of the worst, most embarrassing things ever. Um, but, but this season, this show has one of the best murders ever. So there's a festival, of course. Um, there's already been one murder, but, you know, we got to have the festival go on. And uh, 
Susie Quattro actually plays a role in this episode, and she's the singer of this band, Hired Gun. And she's on stage, and she starts singing, and she goes into this really high-pitched note, and she's shaking. Well, it turns out what has happened? A chord has been connected to her microphone, and she is electrocuted on stage. So Jones is watching this, freaking out, and everybody's freaking out. Um, and of course, what do they do? Of course, the festival still goes on after yeah, that. You know, but it, but it's like that's one of the funniest murders because she's just going nuts and screaming, and that turns out it there there was this elaborate electrocution made to look accidental, supposedly. But then, of course, Tom Barnaby quickly figures out that it was intentional. Um, Later, there is an episode called Written in the Stars. This is season 15, episode three. So we're dealing with John Barnaby here. This one is really, really crazy. It is um, involves astro- an astrology plot and an astronomy plot. So there is a, of course, a, a groundbreaking observatory in the middle of midsummer, you know, that's renowned. Uh, there's I mean, a young because buddy. the middle of England with all the clouds is naturally the yeah, place perfectly, that you're a perfect place to yeah. have a, a telescope, right? Right. Sea and, level in the middle of all the horrible weather is where you would. Yeah. Put. The fog. Yeah. I didn't even think about that, but there, there's a young astronomer, Indian woman who Indian British woman, who's like, you know, a genius and she's coming up with all this stuff, but there's this whole plot where, all of the deaths are related to this moonstone area. And they're they're one of the deaths is by meteoroid fragment. Someone, someone bashes, someone finds a, a rare meteoroid fragment and bashes this guy. And now, of course, they have to be symbolic, right? Um, and the bodies are all arranged to match constellations. Mm-hmm. And there's a clairvoyant, an astrologer slash clairvoyant, who's predicting the murders and the curses. So it kind of gets a little supernatural because she's right a lot. Um, it's really ridiculous. Um, another great death. So Jeff mentioned the wine bottle one. It's pretty hard to beat. There's another one uh, that I didn't write down on the notes that's like, actually, there's a, a episode where these people have this tiny town they maintain, and it's like a tourist attraction. And there's a guy who's murdered, on, you know, the first murder of the opening of the show is this guy who's been pinned down Gulliver's travel style and murdered in the little town. So that's one. And then there's one wild harvest, probably a uh, top five ridiculous murder where this guy is. Uh, tied to a tree covered in truffle oil and murdered by a truffle seeking wild boar. Nice. Uh, that's pretty crazy. And of course we mentioned the murder uh, you know, that's one, one of the most notorious from the episode schooled in murder, which is season 15, episode six, again, John Barnaby era, where a woman is bashed in the head with a cheese wheel. <laughs> uh, so yeah, there's, there's like, um, you know, and obviously in the, in the beer episode, there are some crazy, uh, you know, the, the 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 murders have to be elaborate. They have to be topical. So all of the ep- murders in the Costa, the Curse of Costa and Ab- uh, Abbey episode are beer related. So there's one where w- one guy is dropped into a boiling vat of beer, of wort, uh, boiling wort. And then there's a pitchfork, which is kind of a, a, a tool for the grain, like harvesting the grain for the beer that's used in another murder. And of course, the character was killed because she was an alcoholic and, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's it there. There's a lot to that plot, but um, that episode is kind of fun. It's dumb, but fun. Now I want to talk about the character. So obviously Tom Barnaby is the main character. Um, and I want to talk about him, his kind of style a little bit and how it differs from John Barnaby and how the show has changed. So Tom Barnaby is a very, you know, he's not one to get really dramatic. There are a couple of episodes where he gets angry and dramatic at the killer, but mostly he's kind of baiting them. And he's kind of 
like coolly sarcastic with them. And most of the crimes that wrap up in his era, um, they they don't usually involve like uh, it's different than John Barnaby. John Barnaby is a much more dramatic where he's facing off against the murderer and the murderer is trying to kill somebody else or threatening him or threatening the partner there. It's a very dramatic ending where he's trying he's kind of Scooby Doo narrating what the killer has done and like trying to psychologically because, of course, as we'll get into it, John Barnaby's a psychologist. Um, he's trying to kind of convince him not to murder. Whereas Tom Barnaby is usually just kind of interviewing them in a police station or in some other location. And it's a much calmer scene. So let's play this first clip of Tom Barnaby wrapping up a case. When did you give Michael Bannerman the shotgun? I told you I didn't. My husband must have given it to him. Why should I believe you, Mrs. Mundy? You've lied to me through all this, haven't you? You told me you didn't have an affair with Michael Bannerman, but you did. You said Bella wasn't having an affair with Stephen Bannerman, but she was. And you told me that you went up to Michael's flat and spoke to him on the night Jamie was killed. I carried coffee and sandwiches up to Michael, Mr. Bannerman, just before 11 o'clock. We talked for about 10 minutes, and then I came down and cashed up in the restaurant. People having affairs. Yeah. So, so you can see he's just kind of outsmarting the person and kind of calling them on things. Let's play the next clip. Oh, you little beauty! <laughs> Guess what? Ralph now says that you murdered Marcus Lowry. Which, of course, I already knew, but was unable to prove. What are you talking about? He saw you do it. Then he's lying! <laughs> no, I think you've both been very honest. You with your description of Jim Tate's unofficial burial, and Ralph with his story of how you beat Marcus Lowry to death with this. No matter how well you cleaned it up, Charlie, there'll be bits of him on it somewhere. So, yeah, so there's there's Troy chiming in. We'll have more to talk about with Troy. But you can see how he's so sarcastic, right? He's yeah. cutting them down. They're denying it. He's outsmarting them. It's very cool and calm, right? Yeah. Uh, let's. I'm not, I'm not going to play the next clip yet. Let's skip skip that. Um, what we're going to do is uh, I want to play John Barnaby now. So John Barnaby, his endings are nine times. Sometimes they're like this. They're calm or they're there's a there's an aftermath and they you know they kind of talk about things in a calm fashion but usually they're very dramatic suspenseful endings where he's facing off against the killer and they're about to try to commit another murder or they're trying to kill him or they're trying to threaten jones or another one of his partners so let's play uh, you know he's a psychologist so he's trying to he's trying to convince them right so let's play play the first clip of john barnaby uh end of episode so you think you've won? Everybody got what they deserve. You don't know what they did. I've met your type before. Excuses for everything. Every little failure in your oh, life. Shut up! And all because it's so much easier to blame someone else for your own weaknesses, isn't it? No. It was their <laughs> fault. I've met your type before. Yeah, exactly. Do shut up. Yeah. You can see how he's so firm. And, you know, in that scene, he's actually, she's got the woman hostage and he's running to find her and he's trying to talk her at the same time down to, to convince him to show him where he's got, she's got this woman she's going to kill. Um, anyway, let's move on to the next one. Richard would never 
have agreed to keep that secret. So you set out to traumatize Felix. The last act of your revenge being to kill him and disappear having faked your own death. But it doesn't matter. Only that hasn't worked out, has it? Felix will die like Richard in agony at the bottom of a cliff. No! No, Grace! Drop it! Drop it! <laughs> okay, so this this clip, there's a guy who's a rock climber who's hanging off the side of a cliff of the rope, and this guy's gonna cut the rope. Yeah, and that's when they all run to stop him. So you can see he's trying to talk him out of it. He's yeah, trying yeah. to tell him all he knows all about the murder. Yes, you did this, and blah 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 blah. Okay, let's play the final one because they're all kind of similar. Um, yeah, I may not have the final one. Like oh, okay, the, yeah, so I may have fucked up the clip four. So oh, that's all right. Forget. Well, well, we got two for two. Then we got yeah. two John and two Tom. Um, yeah. And then, of course, I want to talk about the comic relief, right? So uh, we're going to go back to the other clip I I skipped before. So I mentioned the episode "The Axeman Cometh." So "The Axeman Cometh" shows a, a little personal side of Barnaby where he talks about the hired gun, this band, and how they changed his life and stuff. And he has a meeting with the lead, the hired gun himself, the, this crusty old British actor you've seen a million times before, who's playing this old rock star and this rock star is playing guitar and he gets into a little jam session with barnaby so let's play that so what's that stuff did you do i'm sorry and that's good for yours i think we ought to stick to the matter in hand mercy said covers it no it was not no no it certainly was not we followed the true blues path it was uh, johnson <laughs> hopkins john lee hooker Mr. John Lee, my man, eh? <laughs> Jesus. Hey, come on. Yeah. <laughs> I love the way you walk. I love the way you talk. I love the way... Yeah, that's like a cringe fest of them jamming together on this old blues shit. It's so bad. Well, and it's cut, you know, where it's very obvious that Barnaby, the actor, can't play guitar at all. because Neither of them can play. Yeah, like, uh, the guy's faking. You can actually see him fake pretty badly. Yeah. Um, bad fake uh, air guitar acting or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then John has comic moments, too. There's a lot of comic moments. Obviously, um, you will talk more about with Joyce and Cully in a bit. Um, uh, there's a lot of moments around her cooking that Tom has some uh, funny moments. And then John, his moments, like, obviously I mentioned the ghost of cost and Abby. I really like that one where the, with the real L moment, but then a lot of it is Sykes, you know, his dog. There's a lot of him interacting with the dog. It's very corny. Yeah. Um, and then him and his wife, it's kind of cringy because they talk about sex a lot more than, than Joyce and Tom do. Uh, Joyce and Tom, I don't even know if they really have a, a sex life, but with Sarah and John, there is no doubt you hear about it all the time and it's kind of gross. Yeah. Um, anyway, so, but I, but I, you know, I, I, I think John's fine. I think Neil Dudgeon's fine. I just think in general, the show is kind of played out in a way. I mean, it's still kind of comfort food for me, but, um, I definitely think it's best years are probably behind it. Yeah. And we can I can talk about that more when I wrap things up. But as far as Joyce and Cully, I don't mind them too much. I think Cully is kind of interesting. You know, it's like kind of kind of cool that she's just kind of lost as, as a young person. You know, she's kind of trying to find herself. And that's kind of um, 
cool. But the Joyce terrible cook thing is one of the most cliche tropes of all time. I mean, yeah. that has been done so many times. In every sitcom of the 60s. and Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, like, but there there are some funny moments. One of them is this episode called Tainted Fruit, which of course is a a double entendre because there's, you know, obviously the tainted fruit of the people involved who are involved in all the sex and murder. And there's also this recipe she gets for this jam that's called like muddle jam, which my wife loves British cooking and all this stuff. And she totally knew exactly what it was. And it's this jam you actually made with fruit that's kind of gone bad, mm. like beyond ripe. And so at the end, she makes a, a thing of it and she's really proud of herself and Tom tastes it. And she's like, oh yes, we can have this every morning and all this. And, and Tom's like, mm, or maybe just special occasions. You yes. know, like, and then she says, but no, I have so much. And then, and then it, the camera pans to like, 40 bottles of this stuff and that's pretty funny you know but it's it's pretty it's pretty a bad and then there's an episode where cully tries to put tom on a diet he's at a a club you know he's getting some new a new suit and he can't fit his old suit on and so she's like i'm gonna put you on a diet and she has like troy watch him and he keeps trying to get bacon and eggs behind her back i mean behind his back that's pretty pretty um ridiculous right one of the um, cully ones by the way i didn't mention i'll just bring up now is there's an episode where cully gets back together with her old schoolmates who try to kill her did you see oh, that wow yeah yeah i think to, i do remember that one they try yeah. to drown her and and my wife was cheering them on hoping that they were successful <laughs> anyway go, go on. okay so now i want to talk about my favorite character on the show which is gavin troy he's also kind of the most problematic character which i'm going to get into but I really like Daniel Casey's portrayal of him. And I like the way he's written because he seems so real to me compared to the others. Um, I do like Tom Barnaby as well. Um, but I think Troy is the funny, has some of the funniest moments, even though they're also pretty cringy and non-politically correct. Um, the first thing I want to talk about is how he's kind of a, a cockney kind of bloat kind of guy. You know, yeah. you almost imagine him being one of those soccer thugs, you know, yeah, he's East Ender he's, type. Yeah. East Ender. He's, he's, there's actually one of the episodes where they go back to his old school and, you know, it seems like he might've been kind of a troublemaker and, um, but he uses a lot of slang and stuff to describe things. Like he calls old people wrinklies, which I think is hilarious. <laughs> um, and there's one funny. clip of him. So just to set this up, there's a, me uh, there's a, um, episode called faithful unto death. And the, one of the characters is lying on a floor and they, you know, him and Tom Barnaby come into the scene and they think he's been murdered. It turns out he's just drunk. So this is this is um, the the way that this plays out. So let's play the clip. Is he dead? No, I don't think so. Well, how can you tell? You did the first aid course, prove it. DCI Barnaby. He doesn't need an ambulance, sir. He needs a bucket of cold water. Rat-assed. <laughs> Rat-assed. Rat He's bloody rat <laughs> That's like the best, right? Yeah. Um, so I really, I really like uh, Troy's kind of earthiness there. But of course, he also happens to be really homophobic. And this is no more apparent than in the initial episode of Badger's Drift. Um, and this actually supposedly Anthony Horowitz toned this down as well. So Carolyn Graham had him really be bad in, in the books, but he's still not very politically correct. His first, the first indication of this is when he runs into Dennis Rainbird, who's very kind of effeminate and flamboyant. And he he calls him sir sarcastically. And then 
an amazing line um, Daniel uh, uh, Dennis Rainbird gives back is he is he tells Tom Barnaby you've got a right old constable here, which <laughs> I couldn't believe they allowed, uh, but it was really funny. I get you know, cunt in in the U.S. is a nasty the probably the worst thing you could say to a woman, but in England they often say it about men and it's kind of more generically used. But it's still crazy that a regular show, um, uh, you know, would do this. Yeah. Um, Okay, so um, I want to talk about what follows that. So after that, um, you know, Tom and uh, and Troy go to visit the scene of the sex act, and they're trying to wonder why someone would be scandalized by be caught being caught having sex in the woods, and uh, Troy speculates on that, and that's that's the setup for this clip. Do you really think that's what it came down to, sir? But she saw two people at it. Looks like it, Troy. Well, why would they want to kill her? Unless it was adultery. I suppose it could have been arse bandits. What? But in the wood. You mean homosexuals, Troy? <laughs> well, that's what I said. You are as politically correct as a Nuremberg rally. <laughs> yeah, ass bandits. I mean, oh, come on, dude. That's amazing, right? Fucking ass bandits. But I like that. Every time he does this, I, by do the it. way, I think that might be one of the Midsummer porn episodes that's out there. Oh, wow. There you go. There you go. Yeah. Awesome. Um, every time he does these kind of quotes, as you'll see in the next couple, I'll play uh, Tom Barnaby does call him out. You know, yeah. he does actually call him out, which is kind of cool. Now, the next one is from Faithful Unto Death. So in this episode, there is a character who is, you know, kidnapped she basically fakes her own kidnap and she's one of the murderers but kidnapping but you know and and she's trying to get ransom and all this stuff but it's revealed that she had a lesbian relationship in the past with another one of the characters and that's uh, uh troy and barnaby are discovering that in this scene so let's uh play this scene if she's her own friend why is she not more worried about simone's disappearance then Now that answers about a dozen questions. <laughs> if only I knew what they were. A couple of old dykes, eh? You don't really have a soft pedal when it comes to the English language, do you, Troy? Spades a spade, sir. <laughs> yeah, so he's he's calling him out again a little bit, maybe more gently this time. Yeah. <laughs> okay, couple, final one. A couple of carpet munches, eh? <laughs> Get for the donut bumpers. Dude, I know, I know. <laughs> uh, okay, the last one. So in this one, this is called Blue Herrings, this episode. And in this episode, they're basically dealing with these murders that take place in an old age home. And Troy is, you know, interviewing some of the, the residents. And he comes across this one guy who seems very nervous and very kind of, let's say, maybe effeminate. Um, and this is his assessment of the situation. A bit of a nightmare, sir. Couldn't get a straight answer out of any of them. There was one thing, sir. What's that? One of the old boys behaved very strangely when he found out I was a detective. Strangely? How? Jumpy. Ill at ease. He seemed scared. Huh? What's his name? Pruitt. Arthur Pruitt. Retired schoolmaster. Puffter. Oh, fuck. Well, that's what he is. A right cream puff. It was a crime when he was young, Troy, to be gay. Maybe that's why he was ill at ease. Bad <laughs> memories of people like you. Yeah. <laughs> of people like you, I love it. 
Yeah. And I also love that they call out that, you know, it was in fact a crime to be homosexual in, uh, in Britain for, you know, forever until like, I think the early sixties and even Alan Turing, the, you know, computer science pioneer committed suicide because of this. Cause he yeah. was uh, arrested for being homosexual. I like that they call it up, but yeah, it's uh, Troy just throws it out. Yeah. Puff to cream puff. To, you know, he just yeah. throws it out. Um, anyway, so that's Troy. He's, He's very problematic. <laughs> very problematic in that sense but also kind of real yeah and i also like you know they give him some other characters the the bad driving thing is pr- almost always funny and i like that he really tries to solve the murder and he's almost always wrong he's a really good foil for barnaby i feel like the other um jones i don't mind too much either he's got some personality but i think the other guys are all pretty generic and um even Jones, to a certain extent, is kind of an everyman. He's not really that interesting as a character. They don't really develop him very well, even though he was on the show for years. It seems like with Troy, they develop him. And Troy, they do give him a little sexy time with Cully. They make out a little bit. Um, and there's one amazing scene where an older woman seduces him. Yeah. And and it's is that the it's one where fun- she's talking about his fingers? Yeah, totally. Yeah, totally. And she's like starting to kiss him and then he's like called away or whatever. But it's like pretty crazy. Um, And again, I didn't know about the True May stuff before this episode that Jeff found, but it totally makes sense to me. The show I was looking, I was like, when are they going? I was going through the Midsommar fan wiki, which lists all the casts kind of going through trying to find out because they list average body count. They list, you know, who's the murderer of each one just to kind of go over uh, to learn, you know, to, to, for research. And I was like, okay, I'm going to go through every season, every actor, and I'm going to see when the first person I find is a person of color. And I got through like seven seasons and I just gave up. Um, but uh, definitely around the last few years, I would say right after True May left or was uh, ushered out, um, it definitely became more of a multicultural show. And I think it's a good thing but again the show is getting kind of tired and they they've gotten really outlandish with plots because i think they've kind of exhausted the basic you know uh someone wants to build a new pub or someone wants to build a new golf course on this old forest or whatever yeah they've kind of gone through the or or we have a book club or we have this club you know they've kind of gone through that a bit um, they do have a lot more younger characters on the show now as well. They tend to have younger people. I, and it's definitely an effort to expand the audience. But again, what purpose does this kind of show serve? I think for me, it's just escape. And it's just a comforting show to watch. Yeah, And it's because it's one of these shows where even though there's murder, even though there's sex and everything, in the end, everyone's caught, right? The problems are solved. There's no lingering soap opera. It's just a tight, controlled little narrative. And it's like, if you miss things, it doesn't really matter because you're not really going to guess who it is anyway. And even though it's gotten more ridiculous, I still think the production values, the music, the settings, uh, most of the performances are pretty good. To me, it's just like the CBN oil or the melatonin I sometimes take to help me sleep or the, you know, the diffuser. It just relaxes me. Um, and, um, you know, it's so funny, maybe, maybe also I feel safer living in my kind of semi bad neighborhood in San Francisco than I would living in an English village full of homicidal old people. I don't yeah. know, you're, you're, um, but it's uh, somehow comforting. probably better. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, now will it last? I think so, because I think it's already proven 
that it's lasted through the Tom Bar, even though I think the show hit its peak with Tom Barnaby and the early and and um, Daniel Casey uh, as Gavin Troy. I think it's still quite highly rated, and there are so many other shows like it. I mean, there's even shows that are even lighter. Like there's a show Agatha Raisin that's absolutely almost just a comedy. I mean, there are there are shows that are even lighter than this, even cozier than this, that have gone even farther and more absurd, much more absurd than Midsummer, which is saying a lot. So, you know, my opinion is when Neil Dudgeon decides to hang it up, they're going to just find another Barnaby nephew yeah. or something to be the next one. And I think it'll just continue. It's, I think it just depends on when they decide to hang it up or if the ratings go down. But I just think this and shows like this, they just fulfill, I think a lot of people view it the way I do, where it's just a little escape. You know, they're not looking at it as a great quality, but it's just a fun escape. And it's, um, it just serves that purpose. And I don't think it's meant to be this great thing. Uh, I guess if they, you know, I guess the one thing that could affect it is if that area of the country is developed. Now, I'm pretty sure almost all of these cottages are historical landmarks in the UK. And so probably that's a safe bet that they'll be maintained. But if things change in the landscape, I think that's the one thing that could threaten it. I just don't see that happening. So I think I'm pretty long on the show, even though as is it it great or not? No, but I think it's going to last. So that's the my evaluation. All right. That wraps it up. You went long. I went slightly short. And we learned uh, what a poofter is, and uh, so. <laughs> more importantly, what an ass bandit is. What an ass bandit, ass banditry, the, yeah. all the ass banditry that's going on. Yeah, so uh, you could probably do your own Google search for ass bandit midsummer, and what you find is not my responsibility. All right, wrapping up here, episode thirty. That's midsummer murders. We'll catch you next time. This is Jeff. That slip later. 